Hello, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of Right on Prime, the space where we talk all things primary care and generalist family medicine. My name is Heidi James, and I'm joined by the one, the only family doc extraordinaire, Vanessa Cardi. Great to see you, Vanessa. It's great to see you too, Heidi, and happy birthday to Right on Prime. Right on Prime has turned four years old today, so happy birthday. Woohoo! Thanks to everybody for listening. It's my birthday! Now that we've celebrated, it's time for us to get down to business, and we're going to chat about something, and I'm going to give you a little bit of a hint to see if you can figure out what it is. All right. I'm scared because I feel like I'm going to have to answer a question, but go ahead. Okay. So what is the condition that affects primarily growing adolescents and is colloquially known as curvature of the spine? Oh, well, that's not fair. You gave me the answer in the question. It's scoliosis. You're right. You're right. I mean, please don't take it as I think you are incapable of answering a more difficult question. I just, you know, for ease, I just thought I'd make it very obvious. I like spoon-fed knowledge. Thank you. (laughs) Don't we all? Yeah, so recently I've seen a bevy of teens with scoliosis, so I took it as a sign from the universe that we should look at some of the highlights about idiopathic adolescent scoliosis. Okay, so this is good. So you're talking about the -the run-of-the-mill scoliosis, not the less common types like congenital or neuromuscular. We're just focusing on the ones here with no clear cause that crops up most often in the teenage population. Yeah, absolutely. We're going to keep it simple. So here are the basic facts. We see this in growing adolescents. In fact, we see it in 1% to 3% of Americans in this age group. It affects males and females equally, but is more likely to progress in females, which is certainly what I've seen in my practice. Um, And seeing as it's relatively common, you and others may be wondering if screening is recommended, but the USPSDF's current answer is no. I mean, they have a, a better statement than that that says they have found insufficient evidence to assess the balance of benefits and harms of screening for adolescent idiopathic scoliosis in children and adolescents aged 10 to 18 years of age. Or just no. Okay, so talk to me about how these patients might present. So presentation really can vary, and most of the ones I've diagnosed have really just been because their moms brought the teens in because they thought their kids' back looked crooked, or they had a curvature in the spine. So those with scoliosis, interestingly, are more likely than the general population to have back pain, as you might expect, but that back pain doesn't appear to correlate to the degree of curvature. So... Interesting on that front. But we do have to remember that severe cases of scoliosis can cause rib deformity and affect pulmonary function as well, as you'd imagine, as that uh, chest wall gets deformed. And of course, there are are cosmetic impacts and psychological impacts from that as well. So if someone comes in and says, my back is crooked, how do we go about examining them officially? How do we do this properly? Right. So the proper way to do it, if we're, you know, doing OSCEs or being tested in med school, there's a few tests that we can do. Obviously, we need to appropriately robe the patient so we can actually see the area. And the first thing we're going to do is ask the patient to stand up and inspect their back, because sometimes it's just obvious just looking at them that way. The next thing we're going to do is the forward bend test, where we ask them to lean forward, kind of like they're going to touch their toes. And then we observe the patient from behind and from the side to note any asymmetry of the back. And what you're going to see is one side will probably be a little bit higher than the other or a lot higher than the other. If you are keen and if you want to attempt to quantify the degree of scoliosis, this is when you can fetch your scoliometer from the 1960s and put it on the back to actually calculate the degree. Or if you're, you know, a little bit more current, you can use your scoliometer app to do the same thing. 
And what this does, it gives you a rough degree of the Cobb's angle. Okay, I'm glad you mentioned Cobb. Who the heck is Cobb or was Cobb and what is their angle that we're worried about here? Well, I've been wondering that too, so I did look it up. So Dr. John Cobb is an American orthopedist and the angle is named after him. We put an illustration in the show notes because this is really something that I'm going to tell you what it is, but you also want to see it to, to understand it. So radiology 101, so what we basically do is do a plain film of the spine. We look for the most tilted vertebrae at the top of the curve in the frontal plane and then the most tilted vertebrae at the bottom and then draw lines parallel to the vertebrae's endpoints, and where they intersect is the Cobb's angle. There's a few different ways to do it that exceeds my interest in skills in geometry, but really have a look at the picture. It explains it much better. So this is a bit esoteric, but I think that image is going to be really helpful. So you mentioned the plane film. So obviously we have to image these patients. Is that right? Yes, we do. We do indeed. At my shop, I just order a scoliosis series. You can also order like an L-spine, T-spine, whatever you might usually do. And why are we doing this Cobb angle? It's to help determine treatment. So that's why we need the imaging so we can get the Cobb angle to then figure out what we're going to do for treatment. Would you like to hear a little bit more about that, Vanessa? I would. I'm worried you're about to start talking about lots of angles, but I'm going to try and stay focused. So um, here we go. I'm ready. So Cobb's angles over 40 degrees should be referred to a surgeon for potential surgery. Cobb's angles between 30 and 39 degrees, you should see a surgeon just for a chit-chat and uh, possibly look at some bracing as well. Cobb's angle of 20 to 29 degrees, we re-image in six months and refer for consideration of bracing and physical therapy. And those who have an angle of less than 20 degrees, we generally just observe and consider physical therapy involvement depending on how they're doing. Okay, so that's not as hard as I thought it was going to be. That seems kind of straightforward. Is there anyone else who might benefit from a surgical referral? Consider referring those who have a lot of growing left to do, so those with a younger age and skeletal immaturity. And those who have a family history of scoliosis, they should probably be referred as well. Now, you mentioned that for those who have a Cobb angle of under 20 degrees should just be observed. They don't need any other referrals to physio or surgery. So what does observation mean for these patients? So recommendations are to re-image these folks in six months and also to keep an eye on them clinically so you can determine if they would benefit from some physical therapy. Okay, so we're sort of checking in for pain and any other concerns. Those are who we have to refer. How effective are the actual therapies if our patients get them? Well, that's a great question, and the goal of therapy is to stop progression. We do have a good-sized study from 2013 that showed that bracing has an NNT of 3 to prevent surgery, which is really encouraging. In the same year, a good-sized study on physical therapy came out showing that doing physical therapy actually resulted in a decrease in the Cobb angle 12 months post-treatment as compared to the placebo group. So that's, uh, that's pretty exciting. And there seems to be a specific subset of exercises called the Schroth method that is quite beneficial. In terms of does surgery help? Well, it's not quite as rosy. It's never actually proven to be better than bracing, even for severe scoliosis. So I suspect this is one of those areas where it's actually hard to do that randomized control trial, but uh, it's never actually proven to be superior. So how are your patients doing? Overall, they're doing really well. One of my patients, a female patient, did go on to need surgery, but most are managing very well with physical therapy and all have seen improvement without uh, progression on repeat imaging at this point. That's great to hear and particularly to have the follow-up on how they're all doing. So now that we've become experts on scoliosis, let's turn our attention to the rest of the show. 
Hobie is here for a chat about student debt. You and Jake make me question why I've ever ordered bedside spirometry in the hospital. And Justin Bailey shares everything we need to know about prostate cancer, from screening right through to treatment. And of course, we also have Steve and Ken in their top 10. We've got rural medicine and more. So sit back, enjoy, and we'll see you on their side for the March 2023 fourth birthday edition of The Summary. What I want to talk about is medical student debt. Oh, I'm going to sit down for this one. Coming to you from semi-scenic Loma Linda, California, it's Reviews and Perspectives with Dr. Hobart Lee. I expect experiences vary widely depending on what country people trained in and when they train and what their baseline finances are. But this student debt is a near unifying experience. Yeah, I think so. And I appreciate the comment about varied experiences. So we're going to talk in broad strokes here. But I wanted to think about particularly as it relates to physician specialty choices as we're focused on family physicians and primary care. I also want to mention that in our conversation, this is not meant to be a pity party or us complaining about our financial situations. I think we both acknowledge as physicians we are paid very well. We have roofs over our head. We can put food on the table for which we are both very grateful, and we acknowledge that's not true for many people in the world. So our focus today is going to be about understanding how medical education debt affects physicians. Let's start with the average med school debt level. What are our students entering residency with? Yeah. Well, before we go to that, I think we're going to have to take a step back and discuss the educational path to becoming a physician. Mm. So the first place that many physicians start to compile or accumulate educational debt is during their college or undergraduate education. And as a mid-career physician, it's been a long time since I thought about being in college and paying for college, but the cost of college in the United States has doubled in the last 20 years. It's just mind-boggling. Undergraduate education is so expensive. People are putting down tens of thousands, up to hundreds of thousands of dollars, especially when you think about it's only the prerequisite for moving into medical school. Like they're just going to these colleges just to go to school some more. Yeah, exactly. So I think it's one thing to think this is a terminal degree, so you're going to pay lots of money, but it's the last degree you're going to get. The the problem with undergraduate education being so expensive is if you're going to become a physician, it's a stepping stone to all the other education that you need. And so when you start accumulating debt that early, it is really quite it compounds, as, as we kind of, many of us personally know. <laughs> I remember even in my medical school, there were people with advanced degrees. So not just an undergraduate degree, but graduate degrees, maybe a PhD. So these people have accumulated tons of debt before we even hit medical education. Yeah. So as the cost of college has gone up, so has the total debt for undergraduate education, which is up about 25% since 2009. So averaging approximately around $30,000 Has the cost of medical school gone up in the last while, too? Absolutely. So a four-year public medical school costs about $150,000 now, (gasps) while a private medical school education is over $244,000. Wow. And I would assume these are students who domestically train within the United States rather than students who go overseas to pursue training because their education would be even more expensive. Even more expensive, yes. So if you are an international medical graduate, if you're you're not a citizen in a country and you're paying out of state or out of a country cost, that you can tack on money to that. 
The AAMC actually found that for the class of 2021, the average public medical school-related debt was 194000 while <laughs> private medical school was over 218000 And get this, between 14 and 27% of students have over 300000 in educational debt between college and medical school. Hobie, $300,000 is a house in many places of the world. It's a very nice house. Right? I mean, this is where I think people talk about carrying two house mortgage payments when they really are talking just about their educational debt and a regular house mortgage payment because these numbers are astronomical. Wow. And if you get physician couples, physician, physician couples, they could be looking at well over $500,000 in debt. Easily, easily. Whew. So we're talking, on average, a new medical school graduate is looking around $225,000 of educational debt. And the starting salary of a PGY1 intern in the United States is about $57,000 a year. And student loans, you have to start paying them back when you start residency, or does, do you wait until you're done training? Yeah, so there are programs that you can defer or uh, forbear or kind of uh, not pay during residency. Okay. But in most of those programs, the interest still compounds. So you may not have to make monthly payments, but that money is still compounding in interest. And so often without any kind of payment, those numbers grow to a larger amount at the end of your residency. Oh my gosh, that's just mind boggling. Okay. So these are some bleak statistics. Carrying this amount of debt surely impacts career choice. Like, I would imagine that it would, when someone who has a lot of debt is looking at what specialty they might choose to go into, that would come into play. Yeah, so in 2020, the AAMC discussed physician educational debt, particularly how it affects specialty choice. And what they found was that debt levels did actually not play a strong role in specialty choice but rather more traditional factors like personality fit and specialty content, work-life balance, fellowship options, even future family plans were all more important when in 2019 medical school graduates were surveyed. So what you're saying is there's things other than the payment that are making people not choose family medicine? Is that what you're saying? <laughs> well, it does say personality fit. I don't know if we want every single graduate choosing family medicine, but all the good people, <laughs> we do want them coming in. All of the good ones. Okay, so this report from the AAMC actually broke it down by the amount of debt that people had. And those with the highest debt, so those with greater than 246000 they still did not say that educational debt was the top influencer in their specialty choice. Like Hobart Lee, if I owe $250,000, I would be an interventional radiologist, double-boarded in ophthalmology. That's right. That's right. <laughs> Yeah, it's surprising, right? I mean, I was surprised when I saw the data from the AAMC. And so I think they were also surprised too. And so they actually broke it down by family income level. And those with the lowest quintile of family income were more likely to prioritize future income and educational debt as reasons why to choose a specialty. But those factors still did not crack the top six reasons for choosing a specialty. So it did seem like there was some more influence if your family income level was lower, but again, not the main reason or one of the main reasons to choose a specialty. It's encouraging to know that future docs are still choosing specialties based on their personality fit and the specialty content, which I would agree is probably a more important consideration for long-term job satisfaction when choosing a specialty than income. Yes, and everyone is different, but 
if I was only working for a paycheck, I'm not sure that I could like something enough to be able to do it just to collect a paycheck. I really enjoy the things that I get to do. I am so happy that I chose a specialty based on, again, personality fit and specialty content as opposed to what my potential future earnings could be, even though I was somebody who was saddled with six-figure debt coming out of medical school. Oh, I'm glad you chose family medicine as well. <laughs> <laughs> but let's acknowledge a few limitations to the report. It's, it's a survey-based, and so we know that when you do surveys, there are some inherent weaknesses to that study design. I think one of them is the social pressure to view medicine as pure altruism and that issues like money or finances aren't the reason to choose a specialty. For example, I had some medical student colleagues on the ROAD, which is the acronym Radiology, <laughs> Ophthalmology, Anesthesia, and Dermatology. That's very clever. And I think some of those students chose those specialties for work-life balance and future income earnings Although I'm not sure that they would honestly answer that way in an official survey because it looks quote-unquote bad to do so. Even though I'd say those are perfectly valid reasons to choose a specialty, but maybe the social pressures of how we view medicine don't allow them to be honest enough to mention that. That's right. We want to think that all physicians are in it just to do good things and to help people where it's perfectly legitimate to want to optimize your income with your career, and some specialties uh, allow you to do that more easily than others. Absolutely. No shame in that, friends. No shame in that. No. And what I would say is, I think it's actually a disservice to our own sort of broad field of medicine is that we don't acknowledge those financial pressures or those financial desires as part of the reasons why medicine is a great career and a great calling to be a part of. And so, but I would just say, like, when you survey medical students, I'm not sure that they are feeling psychologically safe enough, maybe, to answer honestly on those type of surveys. I would like to see a survey done 10 years down the road to see job satisfaction as a compared to debt load, because um, yeah. I, this is not the topic of this conversation, but there are issues on family physician payment compared to other specialties. And uh, yes. I would like to see how happy everybody is after the fact. Yeah. And I think that your comment there, again, points to the ability for people to reflect after they've been in practice, after they're more settled, after they have a better understanding. I mean, it's one thing to ask a student, how do you feel about your potential earnings when they make zero dollars <laughs> and they don't understand? No, not, how, not zero when they're paying money, when they're going like well, negative yes. money, right? So, yeah, I mean, like, so I'll speak from my personal experience. I mean, I was somebody who went directly through. So I did college and I went directly into medical school. And so the idea of asking me, what do, I, what do I think about a future paycheck? My answer would have been, I've never had a paycheck before, so I don't know what you're talking about. It's like, true. You mean like summer jobs, like lifeguarding at the pool? Is that what you're referring to? Like, so I think it's a little bit an abstract concept for a medical student to comment on that. And it's better to ask physicians who've been in practice for 10 years, who are trying to pay off their educational debt, who are you know, carving out a career for themselves and asking them how they feel about the same kind of factors of why they chose a specialty. In 2016, JAMA Internal Medicine found that the percentage of students with no educational debt is rising. Interesting. While scholarships are declining. So what does this suggest? Well, it's saying that probably a greater percentage of medical students are coming from wealthy families. So families who are able to afford the astronomical medical student tuition and if that trend continues, then probably only a select few will be able to afford and attend medical school. 
And there'll be huge issues around representation of uh, our local communities and patients, if only a select few can afford medical school. I hope systems change over time because the amount of cost to go to medical school is runs the risk of creating a very homogenous crew of new physicians who will struggle with meeting the needs of various communities that they'll eventually serve. So I hope this is something we're able to adjust and fix with time. Yeah, and, and I would say, as we talked about, it's a very complicated issue, and we didn't have a chance to cover the whole landscape of all the literature. But there definitely is other literature that supports this idea that those coming from lower-income families, those who are underrepresented minorities in medicine, and other you know Native populations, that they look at issues like large educational debt, and it scares them away from pursuing medicine. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, when we talk about trying to train and develop and have doctors that reflect of the communities that we serve, we may be unintentionally segregating and, and disadvantaging a whole population of people simply because they look at that large educational debt and they say, there's no way, there's no way, how would you ever be able to pay that back? I think we have to be careful about that. And particularly in primary care, where we know there's such a large shortage, being advocates for this idea of educational debt reform, I think is something that we can all stand up for because it impacts the work that we do with patients and our access issues. Mm-hmm, absolutely. Yeah. And, and I think the flip side of that is that if there are a larger percentage of students with no medical debt, it means that when we take the median or average, it means that there are a few students who are accruing really large sums of debt. And so, you know, above 300,000, right? And so I think The JAMA Internal Medicine article suggests that less no-debt students are choosing primary care, which again means that kind of our newly graduated colleagues are more likely to be some of the students or some of the graduates practicing who have large financial stress related to these very large educational debt. And I think as we think about well-being, this is, I think, a particularly relevant point I think along with the stress of transitioning between residency and independent practice, they're also dealing with other issues like financial stresses of starting to pay back large educational debt. Yeah, and often at the time in life when they're looking to uh, settle down, you know, have kids, get a house, it's uh, an awful lot of life stage pressures at the same time. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think acknowledging that that financial stress is affecting a junior colleague is important. And for those who are hiring, like just the ability to recognize that the landscape has changed is so important. Like make sure you're offering debt forgiveness or even being aware of what debt relief programs your practice qualifies for. And these are more important factors for new grads as their level of debt increases. Okay, so last questions. Do you remember your last student debt payment and how you felt and how you celebrated and I remember making that last uh, payment. I was so excited. I called my best friend and we went out for a veggie burger. Because <laughs> oh. I'm like, I can't blow the bank, but I can afford a veggie burger with fries. <laughs> it was really good. <laughs> a very economical choice that you made there. <laughs> right? Yes. How about you? So I, I will tell you, I made my last payment. It was done electronically. And it was so surreal because I had this huge six-figure debt. And I just could not believe that I, I had finally paid it all off. And to that point, like next month, like on autopilot, <laughs> I logged back onto the website, the student payment website. And I was like, is it really gone? <laughs> is it still triple zeros? I was like, oh my gosh. Like for years, I just had, you know, every month I'd log on and make a payment and log on and make a payment. I had so gotten used to that. Like the idea that I didn't have to do it was 
was shocking to me. Yes, I made it. I'm free. It's great. It's a good feeling. Well, Hobie, even though you and I are no longer, thankfully, repaying our student loans, I'm glad we've had this conversation because it's reminded me of the challenges that are facing my younger colleagues and our trainees. And additionally, it really makes me want to advocate for affordable medical education so that we can ensure that anybody can go to medical school. Our patients and our profession benefit from having a wide variety of people practicing this craft. So thanks for joining me for this conversation, Hobie, and I look forward to seeing you next month. Yeah, my pleasure. I'll talk to you next month. I got a 50-year-old man in cardiac arrest, and our building just lost power. All right, give me jumper cables, rubber gloves, 3,000 grams of Soul Medrol. Stack. What are you, MacGyver? No, I'm the generalist. Generalist. Greetings all, this is Vanessa Cardi here for The Generalist, and today I'm joined again by Jake Anderson, and today we are talking about incentive spirometry. Hey, Vanessa, yeah, incentive spirometry may seem like a a sort of a random topic, but the idea for the segment actually came from a social media post that Heidi shared with us recently from Dr. Tyler Larson, who's a hospitalist and educator in Los Angeles, California. It basically dispelled the myth that incentive spirometry has any value by itself to prevent post-op pulmonary complications. Right, and this was published by Dr. Larson and a team as part of the Things We Do For No Reason series, which reviews common practices in hospital medicine with little value to our patients. The series was inspired by the Choosing Wisely campaign and is supported by the Society of Hospital Medicine. Yeah, it's a fantastic series. And just like this one, many of their segments dispel myths and uh, burst our bubbles about things that we thought we should be doing. But this question of whether incentive spirometry had any value in post-op patients got us wondering about whether it had any value ever, right? So if it's not helpful post-operatively, is there ever a time where it's helpful? And I certainly recommend it to everyone all the time when I'm caring for patients in the hospital, right? It feels so good to be able to do something for them outside of the medicine we're giving them. I know. I love doing this. I love writing like incentive spirometer at the bedside and, you know, writing out the number of exercises. And I feel like it gives them something to do as well, because it's pretty boring in the hospital. Well, let's dive in to see if it's time that we have to change this routine of ours. So first off, let's make sure we are all on the same page about what incentive spirometry actually is. Yeah, so incentive spirometers are mechanical devices that were developed to help people take long, deep, and slow breaths in in order to increase lung inflation. They are usually like that clear plastic and have a flexible tube with a mouthpiece and then a piston that moves up and down when the user breathes in. You typically encourage patients to try and move the piston as high as possible, doing it in sets of 10 breaths regularly throughout the day. It's kind of like a treadmill for your lungs. Yeah, and the goal is to really expand the lungs because atelectasis seems to be associated with other more serious complications in people who are in the hospital. So the idea is that the incentive spirometry use will help expand the lungs to prevent this. Right. Makes total intuitive sense. But like we mentioned, it doesn't seem to help in patients after surgery, which is a clear time when lung volumes might be low, and this could be helpful, right? In fact, two separate Cochrane reviews, one looking at incentive spirometry use after coronary artery bypass surgery, and one looking at use after upper abdominal surgeries, showed a lack of benefit in preventing post-op pulmonary complications. So it looks to be a waste of time in those post-op scenarios, but what are the other scenarios in which incentive spirometry might play a role? Yeah, well, so my first thought was, after post-op patients, would 
people with chest wall trauma or rib fractures be helped. Like I see incentive spirometry as part of routine care in people with significant chest wall injuries that might impair their normal lung expansion. So I'm curious about whether there's any data there. There's actually surprisingly little data out there, but fortunately there is some. The best available information comes from an RCT published in 2019 that looked at 50 patients with traumatic rib fractures. The mean number of ribs fractured was 4, and the mean age of the patients was 55. They were randomized to either incentive spirometry, in which they were instructed to maintain a sustained maximal inspiration for 3 to 5 seconds before exhalation, and they had to do that 10 times per hour for at least 8 hours a day, versus no incentive spirometry. All right, got it. So 50 patients, not a huge group. But in the spirometry group, there were fewer pulmonary complications, 80% to about 30%, which translates to a number needed to treat of about two to prevent a pulmonary complication. The pooled pulmonary complications included things like delayed hemothorax, need for tube thoracostomy, and atelectasis. There are a number of guidelines that use incentive spirometry as a diagnostic and prognostic indicator as well after rib fracture. But as far as therapeutic tool, this is all I could find. Well, now, what about in those patients with acute respiratory illnesses like pneumonia or a COPD exacerbation? Yeah, yeah, I was really hopeful to find something in those groups too. But there's essentially no data in those groups. So it doesn't appear to prevent pneumonia like we were talking about, and we don't really know if it helps once you already have it. Incentive spirometry has also been proposed as part of treatment for COVID-19. I'm sure we've all seen this or as part of recovery in long COVID, but unfortunately, I couldn't find any published data evaluating incentive spirometry use in this scenario either. What about its use in chronic lung conditions, like not the COPD exacerbation, but just sort of the day-to-day COPD years? Yeah, you know, I called it a treadmill for your lungs. So exercise is good. Maybe we can improve the strength of our lungs. There was one tiny RCT that I came across that looked at its use in COPD, so in the chronic experience of COPD. And they enrolled 27 patients with COPD and found that in the 15 patients instructed to use incentive spirometry, their health-related quality of life was higher at two months than those on medications alone. They also saw improvements in their blood gases for what that's worth, but again, a a tiny, tiny study. Yeah, that's a shame that wasn't 2,700 people instead of 27. Were there any other areas of use that you came across? Oh, man, I I really had to dig. But there was a publication in the early 90s that showed some benefit in patients with acute chest complications of sickle cell disease. But the benefits were all based on x-ray appearance, so not very exciting and not very patient-oriented. And then another trial was looking at incentive spirometry use after lung resection. So that's a really good argument for a time where expanding the lungs would be important. And no, I guess this isn't surprising by this point. Not even after lung resection does incentive spirometry appear to prevent pulmonary complications. So it seems like there are many areas where it doesn't appear to be helpful and a lot of areas where we simply have no idea. I think one argument for it would be related to the fact that the harm is very minimal, I'm assuming, right? Like, is there a harm? What, what are the harms? Yeah, yeah. So using incentive spirometry doesn't seem to put people at risk of like lung injury or like physical complications, which is good. But there is a financial harm that comes with it. And because this is used so universally, there's substantial costs that could be coming at really no benefit to the patients. So one article published in 2018 in the Journal of Inquiry estimated that the annual cost of incentive spirometry 
is over a billion dollars in the U.S. A billion with a B. Oh my goodness, that is no small price tag. No. I'm also thinking about the amount of plastic too that we're using up, and I mean, people probably just chuck them when they get home. I'm sure many people don't continue it when they get home once they take it with them from the hospital. So, based on that price tag. And based on the apparent lack of evidence for this, I'm really questioning all of the time that I've now spent over the last many years counseling people on the use of incentive spirometry. What a drag! Yeah, I know. I hate to I hate to rob us of a tool for sure, but I'm with you. It's it's probably better to focus our efforts on things that we know do help with lung outcomes, like early mobilization in the hospital, getting people up and out of bed. Yeah, that makes a lot more sense, I guess. But if anybody wants to do a massive trial with all of the incentive spirometers that are in all of our hospitals, please do it, because then maybe, maybe we'll be able to go back to writing that cheerful little order of incentive spirometer at the bedside. Although often (laughs) it's just at the bedside and the patient's not using it. So maybe that's also why it's not effective. (laughs) I'd be interested (laughs) to know if a lot of these studies actually had supervised incentive spirometry, because I've seen patients like sucking on those things as opposed to blowing in. So anyway, a topic for another day. But thank you so much for bringing this to our attention. And thank you to the social media posts that provoked all of this deep dive for you. And uh, we'll look forward to chatting with you again soon, Jake. Thank you. Talk to you soon. Abdominal lymph nodes with Chris Drum. I'm here once again with my very favorite Pennsylvanian family doctor, Chris Drum. And Chris, I understand that you have an ER follow-up case to chat about. I just love these. I really enjoy ER follow-up because somebody wrote the first chapter and you get to continue the story. Yeah, this patient was seen in the ER and sent out with a presumed diagnosis of pyelonephritis. And when he came in to see me, he wasn't feeling much better. So what about this patient made the emergency team think they had a a pyelone? The location of his pain would have been consistent with pyelonephritis. His pain was sharp. It was much worse when he was lying down. He did not have any urinary symptoms. It was ruining his sleep and he had not slept in over seven days. Moving and walking did not make the pain worse. It was a deep, sharp pain as described by this patient. He had a few white blood cells and trace blood in his urine dip, normal white blood cell count, and an elevated procalcitonin. I'm just kidding. Nobody really checks those. (laughs) And you really had me going. I'm always loath to question the work of the clinician who actually saw my patient before I did, but what you're telling me doesn't really sound like a pilo. Like a pilo, I've never seen a pilo keep somebody up for seven nights because of the pain from it. This person was CAT scan, right? Please tell me they were. No, he went to the ER. Of course he got a CAT scan. <laughs> but he had a CAT scan without contrast, with the thought that this patient had kidney stones. They did not see stones, but they did show some inflamed mesenteric nodes. Inflamed mesenteric nodes? Well... That could be a lot of things, but the first thing that comes to mind that's probably more consistent with the story is mesenteric adenitis, and I'm actually going to put my money on that. Money on the table. And this is something I tend to think more about with kids, but please tell us what you know about it. Mesenteric adenitis is usually a self-limiting condition. Primary mesenteric adenitis is when there's no known cause, usually right-sided, and this is thought to be often due to some sort of viral infection. But secondary mesenteric adenitis means something else is brewing. And this is what my concern was, because this wasn't a seven-year-old. This was a grown man. So I, I knew he had mesenteric adenitis, but I did not know why. But something just seemed off. 
The patient is one of those people that never came in. You know, we had to drag him in every few years to check up on him. And he told me that this pain was keeping him from sleeping at all. My spidey sense said he needs to go to the ER. So I, I knew he had mesenteric adenitis, but I did not know why. My spider sense is tingling. So let's quickly chat about the differential that we need to think about if we see a patient who has inflamed mesenteric nodes on imaging. In the kiddos, we need to rule out intussusception or intra-abdominal infections, but surely to goodness, a burst appendix or an abscess would have really shown it up on the same scan that showed the mesenteric nodes. But in adults, the list of things to worry about when we see these mesenteric nodes is a bit longer, right, Chris? Want to name a few of them? Men could have epididymitis or torsion. Women could have an ectopic pelvic abscess, ovarian torsion, or endometriosis, which I feel like is always on our differential. Ha, huh, so true. For the adults in general, we need to think about malignancy, mesenteric ischemia, and IBD. And if the whole clinical picture of the patient seems to be infectious, then we need to consider the infections like Salmonella typhi, pseudotuberculosis, mono, HIV, and even a zoonotic infection like maybe Yersinia enterocolitica. And I think we've all probably diagnosed patients with one or more of these illnesses and have not had to do a CT scan of their abdomen. So maybe these patients had mesenteric adenitis and maybe they didn't. We just didn't know because we didn't need to image them. Yeah, this is one of those things where it's really hard to get the epidemiology because most times it probably resolves on its own and Unless people really get imaging, this diagnosis is not made. Okay, so how about we discuss some of the clinical symptoms that our patients might have? Number one, pain. Usually the pain is sharp or colicky, often in the lower abdomen, most common in the right lower quadrant. Patients can have mild fever. Patients can have some vomiting. There can be some stool changes, but these patients can have normal stools as well. They often describe right iliac fossa tenderness. This is exactly where my patient's pain was. The pain often will radiate to the mid-abdomen or the epigastric region. Patients don't usually have rigidity, and rebound tenderness is found about 25% of the time. So your patient's flank pain was actually right iliac fossa tenderness? It was, yeah. On exam, that's, that's where his point tenderness was. Wow, okay, okay. So these symptoms, Chris, of course, uh, leave us with a pretty significant differential. And mesenteric adenitis is admittedly not one that's usually on my list. So how should we work up these patients to figure out what's going on? Diagnosis. The diagnostic workup, you can have a slightly elevated white blood cell count. You can have an elevated CRP. But these findings aren't that specific. Ultrasound is most often used in children, a CT scan in adults. Some people Say you can consider stool testing if patient has diarrhea and we're looking for the secondary cause. And for young people, a mono and mono testing in a CBC would be something, especially if there's also concomitant sore throat and fatigue. Imaging. Now, what about criteria for diagnostic imaging? I suspect those radiologists are pretty particular about what they need to see before they start calling it mesenteric adenitis. Basically, you need a normal appendix and you need three or more nodes five to eight millimeters of at least one node in the short axis. Treatment. Now, moving into treatment, as I understand, there is no one single treatment for this issue. Yeah, I think for children, the number one thing in treatment is making sure that we're educating the children and make sure that we're educating the parents, especially if it's primary mesenteric adenitis, making sure parents know that it's due to a reaction from a virus or something. It will resolve over time. 
knowing that these symptoms can last a few days to weeks. Reassurance for the children and their parents. Rest, acetaminophen, NSAIDs, making sure that we're discussing hydration. And I do encourage people to schedule a follow-up with these patients just to make sure they're improving and nothing is changing in their symptom course. Treatment for secondary mesenteric adenitis is specifically aimed at the underlying condition. Back to your patient, Chris. What was your plan for treatment? I realized he had been initially treated with some antibiotics for possible pylo, but I was considering another course of antibiotics. I was hoping a little Bactrim and my patient would be cured. So was this what happened? I'm sorry to say, but this was not. And I'm glad that he went right to the ER. He had follow-up blood work, which was mostly benign, but he did have a CT of the abdomen and pelvis with contrast at this time. And this scan showed a malignancy throughout his abdomen. And his treatment process actually started with a, an oncology and a palliative care consultation. Oh, wow. So he was CT'd. They didn't see any malignancy. Came to see you. Just looked bad. Your spidey senses were tingling. My spider sense is going full blast. You're like, you need to go to Emerge and get looked at again. What was the malignancy? He has follicular lymphoma. Wow. Wow. I didn't see that coming. Chris, what a case. And it's tough that his family docs that are are interesting cases don't often have the outcome we were hoping for because mesenteric adenitis, I was hoping along with you that this was just a reactive thing to an infection. Wow. But hopefully hearing about this case will help us uh, appreciate that we need to listen to our spidey senses like that emergency physician told you, no, he doesn't need to be here, but you knew your patient and you knew what they looked like. So you, you sent them along. Woo. Okay, well, let's summarize. Tell me the details. Recap. The main thing that I want people to remember about mesenteric adenitis is keep it in the back of your mind in a differential, especially for children, knowing that it's unlikely something that you're going to pick up immediately. But in children, it is benign. Focus on supportive care. Make sure we're educating the families because it's not something everyone knows about. And if they understand the etiology, it's important. In adults... This is a time to make sure we're not missing anything significant. Think about the causes and go back to basics. Get a good history. Do a good exam. And I think we all know when we look at a person and they are different than normal or there is some pain that you can't understand, those are the times where we have to do more to evaluate. Absolutely. And thank you for sharing it with us, Chris. I really appreciate it. If you were a betting woman, what would you say is the number one killer of people with prostate cancer? The number one killer of people with prostate cancer? I would say something else. Something other than their prostate cancer. Something else. (laughs) It's the number one killer of everybody. It's heart disease, right? Like, that's what kills people. Right. And so, so many more people are diagnosed with prostate cancer than die with prostate cancer. If you're fortunate enough to practice medicine for any length of time, you'll quickly realize that what is new soon becomes old and that what is old soon becomes brand spanking new all over again. And one area in which this is certainly true is prostate cancer screening. It has changed a lot over the years. To help us sort through the comings and the goings in prostate cancer screening, as well as to review prostate cancer diagnosis and management, I'm joined by generalist family physician, Justin Bailey. I gave this talk at a a big conference for family physicians a year ago, and we've changed since I gave that talk one year ago, right? Like there's been a a, a massive guideline update since then. So it's chronically changing and it's a big deal, right? Like prostate cancer, it's the second most common cancer in men. We've got about a million three cases per year. It's the fifth leading cause of cancer death, third leading cause of cancer death in men. And those numbers sound scary, Justin, but 
when we look at these prostate cancers that we find the vast majority are just isolated to the prostate gland and never go on to create any problems beyond just existing. A third of these tumors grow really aggressively and are problematic and we need to address. And then two thirds are never going to be a problem for anybody. And so when we go into a screening mode, we're not really sure how to figure these out. You're right. And that's the inherent difficulty with screening is we're potentially detecting all prostate cancers, not just those that will go on to become problematic. And if we detect a prostate cancer, the investigations and tests we do may end up causing more harm than this small little cancer isolated to the prostate gland would have. It's a real conundrum. Stepping back in time. Why don't you take us back to when we first started doing prostate cancer screening? And as I recall, this came around because we discovered that the PSA, the prostate-specific antigen, which is secreted by prostatic cells, was noted to be elevated in patients with prostate cancer because, of course, they had more atypical cancerous prostate cells. In 1986, they said, I think we can use this. Let's, let's start screening everybody. We're going to use this PSA. So we had this massive number of prostate cancers that were found as we started screening. And what was the impact of this prostate cancer screening back in the hair metal decade? Prior to 1986, mortality is about 33 per 100,000 cases per year. And we diagnosed about 100 cases per 100,000 a year. When we started screening, our mortality stayed the same. And all of a sudden, we went from that 100 cases a year to 250 cases a year, right? Wow. And so as we, you know, we did five or 10 years of this and everybody started screaming like, we are massively overdiagnosing this. This is a problem. We're not making them better and we're finding more. And now we're doing all these things that are harmful to people. And so we need to study this, right? Agreed. If your mortality rate hasn't changed, yet you're telling all this many more people that they have the cancer and doing all these tests and investigations that potentially cause problems, I'd say that's a good area for research. And I know they did just that in the early 1990s. We had uh, two big studies started, right? We had the prostate, lung, colorectal, ovarian cancer screening, or PLCO, that got started. And then we had our European randomized study of screening the prostate cancer, the ERSCP. So both of these studies started in the early 90s, and then we stopped them about 11 to 13 years later. And we came up with the answer of, you know, all this screening we're doing is giving us no benefit. And this started that swing of the pendulum of like, well, why are we doing this? Yeah, I remember this. I was freshly in practice when the results of these studies came out. And I remember the pendulum swinging to say, yeah, continue with the PSA. It's, it's sure, it's nonspecific, but add the DRE to this. We think that the digital rectal exam is going to help make prostate cancer screening a little bit more efficacious or hopefully a lot more efficacious. But the catch is it really didn't because things have changed again since, more than once. This swing of the pendulum got us to 2012 when the United States Preventive Services Task Force recommended against screening, right? And this was like earth shattering. (laughs) Like some of us were like, hallelujah, one less thing to do. And we've known this for years that we've been overdiagnosing it. And our colleagues, you know, in neurology are like, you guys don't understand how horrible metastatic prostate cancer is to see. We can't do this. Oh, and let's not forget our patients who... You know, they screw up their courage to come in. The, you know, the 40-some-year-old men, 50-some-year-old men screw up all of their courage and like, nope, we don't do that anymore. We don't need to do a rectal exam of your blood work. And they're like, oh, 
<laughs> are you sure? Is this Obamacare? Are you <laughs> right? No, no, I just, I just don't have to do a digital rectal exam. I, I thought you'd be happy about that. So those were weird times in 2012, trying to convince our patients and ourselves that patients no longer needed screening. But that didn't really last for a very long time, did it, Justin? They did this in 2012. And then in 2018, they gear shifted and they said, oh, maybe it's okay, right? Like, talk to your patients, do this shared decision making. Right. So in 2018, we had this study come out that showed that we did see a decrease in those overdiagnosis, those uh, prostate cancers that weren't going to go anywhere. We did see that decrease, but we are also seeing an increase of patients presenting with metastatic disease. And so we started to get all these reanalysis. And when they looked at these studies again with the fresh set of eyes, they found some areas of concern. And one of them is that screening was really happening haphazardly. Like when a patient was in, you might mention, oh, yeah, let's just check your PSA, rather than it being a structured, specific time interval screening. And another issue, probably far bigger than this, is the fact that they were screening older men. Men over the age of 70 made up a large part of these studies. And in this group, we know from autopsy data that a lot of them had prostate cancers that were never clinically significant which calls into question the utility of screening in this age group. There were study design issues with a lot of men in the non-screening group bleeding over into the screening group, so not much integrity between those two clusters of patients. And when they went back and reanalyzed the data, taking that into consideration, they found the group that was screened did have mortality benefit. And lastly, there was another trial, the Gutenberg trial, that ran for a full 18 years, which is longer than the original trials, and it showed mortality benefit for screening over a longer period of time. They had a 50% total reduction by 18 years. So 50% total reduction in mortality. 50% is huge and certainly moves the pendulum towards screening. So when we've been quoting in the office from, I think, our 2012 to currently, we're like, well, there's no benefit and there's all these harms that can come in. But when we stretch that uh, measuring stick out to like this 20-year mark, there probably mm. is a benefit to be had. So what do we do? When I gave this talk uh, a year ago, I was like, I think that someone's going to come out and say that we need to change this. The Preventive Services Task Force changed their recommendation from a D, don't do it, to a talk about the risks and benefits. And I think where we're finding is we probably know a little better about what the risks and benefits are. Have any other groups weighed in on it? Our European colleagues just in March of 2022, their statement was that there is good scientific evidence now for the benefit of organized population PSA prostate cancer screening. Wow. Particularly, and this is a new thing that no one's ever done before, particularly in combination with additional MRI scanning as a follow-up test and the use of active surveillance. They went on to say further research is ongoing to monitor a need for identifying the groups that will most benefit from this. Offering ad hoc PSA testing for men without symptoms should be discouraged in order to reduce the risk of older diagnosis, especially in older men. I'm curious to hear a little bit more about the role of MRI. So MRI reduces biopsy numbers by about a third. So if you do an MRI, it can't pick up anything less than 0.2 centimeters. And if they mm -hmm. don't see anything on that MRI you shouldn't go biopsy because it's very unlikely to be tumor versus if they see tumor on MRI, there's a 96% chance that it's cancer. So overall, we're reducing the number of people going for biopsy by a third, right? Like it's not 100% of those overdiagnosis, but it's a big chunk of it. Right. And in terms of healthcare utilization, yeah, MRI is not cheap and it is time consuming, but it's probably better overall than uh, getting yourself a biopsy and having all the complications of that. Take the claustrophobia over the uh, infection or the pain. 
Yeah, and they have this like mini MRI. They called it a manogram. No. <laughs> Where it's like a couple quick shots. It's not the hour in the <laughs> MRI tube. I was unfamiliar with the term. I've never heard of it in the States, but it's something they're doing in Europe. And so it's this quick shot and it's $100. So the cost of it's $100 instead of 3000 So they were putting the vision of this may be the right way to do this. Do you have a prostate? Yes. Are you worried about prostate cancer? Yeah, I suppose. And what about that rectal exam? Are you worried about that too? Absolutely. If so, sign up now for your very own Manogram, the state-of-the-art MRI technology that will not only detect prostate cancer, but guaranteed will save you from a hassle in your asshole. Okay, so fair to say we're back to screening. Of course, you know, we talk about it with our patients and have a shared decision-making, but the pendulum has swung that now PSA-based screening is the thing, once again. Is this screening something we should be offering for all of our male patients or just some of them? So right now, everybody is saying if someone's kind of the 70 to 75 group, so we look at Preventive Services Task Force, we look at American Urology Association, there's an NCCN that's like a a combined group of people, the European groups. And as we look at all their recommendations, pretty much everybody's saying is once you're over 70, stop screening because you're not going to be alive and there's not benefit. Okay. So everybody's on board with that. So where do you start screening? That differs from each group. So who do we screen or who should we consider screening? So grade C recommendation from Preventative Services Task Force for men age 55 to 69, that we should start with them. So this, uh, the NCCN, this group of multi-specialty group, they recommend 45 as a starting age. American Urology Association recommends 55 to 69. So somewhere probably in this like mid 50s is where we're gonna see this may be the right time to start screening to get patients benefit, right? And if we screen these patients who have 20 to 30 years left of life, that may be where we can benefit them, right? And then still figuring out how do we get rid of this overdiagnosis, I think is still a challenge. And we're in process of piecing this out. This is my take on where we're going. Hmm. Well, I think we have a clearer idea of mortality benefit here, Justin. I haven't heard you mention anything about clear direction on screening interval. I know they no longer recommend DREs for screening, but how often should we be doing PSA-based screening? Should I do this yearly? Should I do it every four years? We haven't pieced that out. That's still in process. So my hope is over the next five to 10 years, we're going to come to a better understanding of what's the right recommendation. The European Union recommended every four years with theirs, but recommended we all need to be doing the same thing. (laughs) We've (laughs) got to do the same thing and not just do this random, oh, and I'm getting your CBC. Why not get your PSA while you're here? Yeah. So where am I at now? I'm probably like every three to four years in the patient who wants to. I'm talking with him about the goods and bads of it, the overdiagnosis. We do find that. Now, what's your approach to the PSA that comes back ever so slightly elevated? I'm not talking about the the clear cases that come back, like a PSA over 10, over 12, over 20, heaven forfend. Just the ones that, you know, are slightly higher than you'd like them to be. What do you do then? Yeah. So the older you get, that number starts going up, right? So between 40 and 49, less than three is your normal number. But when you get to that next decade, your 50s, right? Less than 4.7 is the number. Your 60s, less than 7.2. So we do see this elevation as we go up. So this has been part of the problem of how do we pick one number to do it? The uh, NCCN recommends greater than three that you biopsy at that. The American Urology Association recommends the greater than three. 
for a, a long time when we were coming through, four was that number. But like you say, there's some variation in that number. You may not necessarily want to do something right away when you get one number that's greater than three. You may want to watch it over time. So another one that they've used over the years is greater than a 0.75 raise in one year or an abnormal DRE we're going to potentially do something with. But each of us have got to decide. Certainly above a 10 is clearly it should be referred, right? Mm. This four to 10 range is our, or a three to 10 range, right? Depending on whose guideline you're looking for. And, and I'm equally like a three, I'm not actually doing a whole lot with. I'm going to watch that one for a while, even though I know that's what's in some of the recommendations. For the preventive services task force, it wasn't necessarily delineated out. It's like, talk about what the screening are, but, but we don't have consensus on it. Let's move along to diagnosis of prostate cancer. I mean, screening really is a uh, you know, what we're concerned a lot with in primary care, but what can our patients and us expect when we have that elevated prostate and we send them along to our colleagues for diagnosis and evaluation? So for a long time, it was biopsy, 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 right? And so we may, hopefully we're seeing a swing of let's not necessarily biopsy everything. I would say in my area, it's still pretty much biopsy for everybody. But I think moving towards a active surveillance uh, kind of process. And we may get some benefit from like that MRI and that active surveillance. Like we said, ultrasound's probably not that helpful there. There's a few things that they may do to splice it out a little better, right? Like a free PSA versus a total PSA. Like if the ratio of that's less than 10%, that's really concerning for prostate cancer versus if it's higher than 25, it might be BPH. So there's some things they're going to do to try and splice it out. But for most patients right now, it's going to be biopsy. And then they're going to take the biopsies, see what they find. And then go from there. So most of these cancers, when they find them, they're adenocarcinomas, like 95% of them. And a lot of times what the pathologist is giving us back is a score, right? It's something called the composite Gleason score. So the baseline was a six, right? Like that you had one area that was maybe bad, but everything else looked good. As you go up in this grouping, it gets higher and higher. So as you get up to a 10, your hazard ratio for cancer is like a 11 hmm. versus a, your baseline, it's a one. So you get a Gleason score and then they are going to bring some other stuff in to decide, okay, what are we going to do for this treatment plan? So some of those other things they're going to bring in, how many of the biopsies were positive, right? They're going to probably send off those biopsies and do germline testing on it because some cancers are going to be more aggressive than others. They're probably going to do tissue-based molecular assays. They will probably do TMN staging, all those things are going to come together. And presumably they're collecting all that information to help determine the best treatment for the individual patient. And they, like the NCCN, they have a risk stratification group. And so they're going to put you in a very low risk, low, intermediate, high, or very high. For someone who's a very low or low risk, this is your, the bulk of them, that it's not anything, that, that they're going to just live their life out with this. And active surveillance is going to be a good way to go. Let's talk about this option a little bit more because it's something we need to be adept at discussing with our patients. We have really underdone active surveillance. And so if we're going to have successful screening programs and treatment programs, my personal opinion is this has just got to be a huge increase in what we do. It's challenging because you tell someone they have prostate cancer and every patient I've told, they're like, I don't want to watch. I've just, we just got to have, we have to do it. Kill it with fire. Exactly. Cut it out, burn it. Yeah, give it drugs, do whatever you need to do. <laughs> and for most patients, honestly, this is probably the safest option because we know the majority of prostate cancers are not going to metastasize. They're not going to become clinically significant. So keeping an eye on things with interval PSAs or whatever else the urologist might recommend, 
is all that some people really need to monitor the cancer, and it will avoid all of the potential downstream side effects and bad outcomes that can happen with some of our prostate cancer treatments. So there's a tone change. There's some kind of change that we've got to do better on how we can get these patients defined and working with this and using that as their treatment. While we're hopeful many more people will adopt watchful waiting, the reality is a lot of people are needing or choosing to undergo treatment. So could you please take a moment to review those treatments and their most common side effects? We go into treatment options. There's radiations, right? There's uh, brachytherapy. There's prostatectomy. There's ablation. There's like castration. Castration was done forever, like androgen deprivation. All those things are not benign things of it, but you get into treatment with some of this stuff and it's like 40, 50% of patients will have sexual side effects. And so like, are we watching for all the other things, GI toxicity that they may get from radiation Mm -hmm. uh, and problems that are associated with that, you know, managing what bowel function is after that. What can we do to help with their erectile dysfunction, right? And are we asking about that? And of course, we can't forget urinary dysfunction after various treatments as well. I think one thing that we're like, oh, we know this, but we maybe don't spend enough time as family docs. A partner's emotional stress with this is probably more in different studies they've looked at. It's probably more than the patient stress with it. And so like, are we watching out for this family that we take care of as well? And, And the people that are important in their lives that help support them kids, you know, relatives, friends that this can be also impactful on. I think that very much falls under our purview of seeing those things and and helping them also receive the care they need in what can be a challenging diagnosis. All right, Justin, you have 45 seconds to summarize everything we need to know about prostate cancer screening (laughs) and management, just like the quick pearls. Recap. My quick pearls are don't dismiss it. And it sh- we probably shouldn't be in the, the box anymore of never screen. That patients who probably have some benefit and probably need to be informed of that are those younger patients, right? That 50 to 60s age range is probably going to be the right range to talk to them. And that the mortality reduction is captured in 20 years, right? 15 to 20 years. That's when our mortality reduction is going to be captured we don't need to screen that 70-year-old patient, right, is, is where we need to go. And once we find prostate cancer, like a low Gleason score, a very low risk on some of these calculators as we come out from this, probably doesn't need to be treated. And we need to do a better job at helping our patients kind of find their feet underneath that. There you have it, everybody. The 45-second summary on where things are at in prostate cancer screening, diagnosis, and management. Thank you so much for being here, Justin. It's always a pleasure talking to you, and I can't wait to do so again. Thanks for having me, Heidi. I don't get it. Back to basics. Oh, got it. Wait, lost it. Hey, Mel. Let's talk about herpes simplex viruses. Hey, can I do a joke to start things off? Oh, dear. Okay. What's the difference between love and herpes? Oh, God. Herpes is forever. (laughs) (laughs) Really? Is that off color? I think it's probably okay for our audience, but yeah, that's a good one. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. I don't want to hit a sore spot, but can we talk about herpes? So, uh, a lot of people have herpes. A lot of people have herpes. How many people have herpes? Well, we're talking about herpes simplex here. There's actually a whole class family. 
extended family of herpes viruses, but we're talking about herpes simplex. And I was sort of stunned to find out that about half the world's population has serological evidence of infection with HSV-1. Mm. So that's the classic cold sore virus. Half the world's population. So this thing is ubiquitous. It's like herpes and humans, they go together. And about a half billion people have the herpes simplex 2, which is more associated with general infections we're going to talk about. So these are very common. Herpes simplex 2 and HIV also go together. If you've got herpes simplex 2, your chance of having HIV is about two to four times that of the general population. So these viruses, they're out there and they apparently like us. We taste delicious to herpes simplex. We typically associate that HSV-1 type of virus with these orofacial and skin infections and HSV-2 for genital infections, but this is not 100% true. And it turns out the incidence of HSV-1 as a genital infection is actually rising in young populations. And so that's something that they will continue to track. But regardless, either one of them, we spread to one another by contact with infectious secretions. And both of them cause these primary infection syndromes that then can recur. But 80%, 80% of all herpes infections are actually asymptomatic. And that's probably why so many of us have the dang thing. This is very similar to COVID, right? Like so much COVID gets spread before you have infections. It's a really smart way for a virus to replicate itself is mm -hmm. to infect you, but not tell you that you're infected so that you go lick and kiss people and you pass it on to everybody in your family and all your girlfriends and boyfriends. And it's, we're gross. Mm -hmm. You sneaky little virus, you. HSV-1. All right. So let's talk first about primary HSV-1 infections. Yeah, so as I said, in a humorous uh, manner, I hope, that the vast majority or 80% of them are asymptomatic. So you just don't know you have it, but you can get a very bad primary form of this called herpetic gingivostomatitis. And I can tell you how bad this is because here we go again, as a young boy from the outback of Australia, I remember having this as a kid. Oh, no. So again, I was about five years old and I got my first episode. Everybody in my family had cold sores. I remember that. Dad had it, mom had it. And then I got my first infection and I couldn't eat. I couldn't drink. I had to stay home from school. I was very sad. Something very exciting was happening at school, like somebody's birthday party and I missed out on the cake. So it was a big deal. Mm. So this is a big time inflammatory lesion in kids. And often they will get it from an infected mom or dad or sibling or some kid at school licked them and had herpes. And they can have really high fevers. They can have big swollen nodes, uh, lots of ulceration in the mouth and not be able to eat and drink. So although I joke, some of these kids can come in looking really sick, high fevers, dehydrated, and look pretty bad. And they can be shedding that initial infection. This is usually the initial infection for weeks. So the initial infection in kids can be quite bad, although most of the time they don't even know they're infected, but it can be quite bad. Much worse than cooties. Yes. Cooties on steroids. Yeah. <laughs> These kids are really cranky. They're unhappy. It's really hard to get them to eat and drink because of pain in their mouths. I'm visualizing a little Mel that we couldn't get to eat or drink. It must have been awful. But if they look really sick, they might need to be transferred to the emergency department for hydration and other supportive care and treatment. But usually this is a self-limited thing. And we recommend popsicles and lots of fluids and antipyretics for fever, analgesics for pain, etc. If they're really sick, if they're dehydrated, if they're lethargic, obviously they're going to need fluids. Uh, they might need IV fluids. You might need to think about transferring. They're probably going to need acyclovir. And in the immunocompromised kids, if they present with this syndrome, that's a little bit of a concerning thing because this can spread. This can become systemic and they can get very sick. So if you've got a kid who's like had a transplant and now has 
gingivostomatitis from herpes, send them off to the hospital to go get seen because they probably warrant a couple of days of IVI cyclovir or other antivirals and the observation of some other clinician. Now, there are some adults that get to adulthood without having had a primary HSV-1 infection. So if adults get a symptomatic primary HSV-1 intraoral infection, it is usually acute herpetic pharyngotonsillitis, which affects the back of the mouth as opposed to the front in kids. So this is like the opposite of the natural order of things. It's kids in the front and adults in the back. And they also get fever, sore throat, lymphadenopathy, headache, malaise. And don't forget that HSV-2 can also cause this presentation from oral genital contacts. Sometimes that can be concurrent with a genital HSV-2 infection, and these people are miserable, as you might expect. Adults also might benefit from oral antivirals in addition to supportive care if they have severe disease. The most common presentation of HSV-1 is the cold sore, or herpes labialis. Yes. So again, these are pretty ubiquitous. That joke at the beginning, I've sort of gone further and reminded people that these herpes viruses, they're recurrent. So they sneak back and they hide and then they come back out again and again and again. So although the majority of people who have an initial herpes infection, like little Mel who had the bad infection, for the majority of people, actually, that's it. Once you clear it, it goes away. But for a significant percent, and I don't remember the number and it doesn't really matter, they will have recurrent infections and classically it'll present much milder with something like the classic cold sore. So the prodrome is a little bit of burning, itching, tingling, and then you get the vesicles and then they'll often rupture and then you'll have a little scar and then that thing will have to heal. And that whole thing can take about seven to 10 days from beginning to end. And although this is not life-threatening, it is disfiguring and it is a pain in the butt to have a giant lesion on your lip. So I used to get recurrent cold sores from my primary infection. The good news is the natural history is that they tend to get better over time. There's lots of theories about why that is. Your immune system gets better and better at knocking it off. So as you get older, you tend to get less and less recurrence of this, but they are painful. And particularly in teenagers, they can be quite uh, disfiguring and you don't want to go to school and you don't want everybody to make fun of you because you've got a giant thing on your lip. So don't underestimate how psychosocially, particularly in kids, that this is a pain in the buttocks, even though it's on the lips. Yeah, I have a pretty low threshold. If someone's coming to the urgent care for this, they're obviously very distressed. Typically, just a one-day course of an oral antiviral might be in order. But a lot of people ask about the over-the-counter stuff, like they're over-the-counter medicines that are directed at cold sores. Do they work? That is a good question because they are painful and they are itchy and you just really want them to go away faster. So there's quite the multi-billion dollar market for the over-the-counter therapies, but it's really not clear if they do work. So if you look at the meta-analyses of these topical antivirals, like a topical acyclovir, maybe it takes a half day off what would otherwise be a seven to 10 day disease. The CDC actually doesn't recommend them, but there is a little bit of evidence that things like topical acyclovir and some other ones, there's one in the States called Abreva. There's a little bit of evidence that maybe it takes off a half day. There is a little tiny piece of evidence that warming, so you'll see this device, and the name of it I've forgotten, but you can get it over the counter here, which is basically just, it warms the area to about 50 degrees, and that supposedly reduces viral replication. There is also some little tiny studies which are not well controlled of actually putting ice onto the lesion, and maybe that reduces replication and can reduce the duration. But the real summary is we don't know. And there's certainly nothing over the counter that works very well. All right. So bottom line, herpes labialis, recurrent, often, 
The secretions are infectious, so don't touch them with a bare finger, or you will get the next herpes disease on the list that I want to talk about, which is herpetic whitlow. So herpetic whitlow is an HSV infection of your finger. And that also can become a recurrent problem. These herpes viruses love to like dwell in the nerves and just come back out when you least want them to. The one thing about herpetic whitlow that I want to say is that you really should not confuse this with a felon or a perinicchia. It's going to be red, but you're going to see those vesicles. Do not incise these. Do not open them. It's easy to confuse them because they can look really similar. So that perinicchia, which is the infection around the nail, and the felon, which is the infection of the pulp of the finger, they're big and red and swollen. And what is herpetic whitlow? It's big and red and swollen. So it's really easy. So just make sure if there's <laughs> lesions, vesicular lesions there, think twice about sticking a scalpel through that. You're just going to spread it all over the place. So that's why, ladies and gentlemen, wear gloves when you're sticking your fingers in people's gobs. Or anywhere. Hey, good point. A couple of other HSV infections to mention before we move on. This is one you don't see a lot, but probably worth knowing about, herpes gladiatorum. I love this because it's like gladiators get this. Like, yeah. are you not entertained with my herpes? Are you not entertained? <laughs> Usually it's wrestlers. Usually it's wrestlers. But okay. yeah, those are gladiators of some sort, right? But these are not gladiators with all the gear on. These are wrestlers with like skin on skin, which is pretty much how they wind up with this disease. Similar to HSV in other areas, it classically presents with this vesicular postular rash on erythematous base that might progress to ulceration and people might be tempted to diagnose it as a folliculitis or infotigo. It's herpes and also can recur and also can be treated with oral antivirals, but usually will be self-limited. A couple of other HSV-1 infections that I want to mention. One is eczema herpeticum. You heard of that one, Mel? I have heard of this and I remember it's bad. But please explain. So yeah, eczema herpeticum can actually be a life-threatening problem if it's not recognized. And this is where eczema, usually bad eczema, gets super infected with an HSV virus. And this happens more often in kids, but can be seen in adults. And it can also be seen in patients who have suffered burns. And this can be a really dramatic presentation. They had their eczema, their eczema was bothering them. It was bad, but all of a sudden now, the eczema is very painful and you're seeing these new vesicular lesions over the body in these eczematous areas. And those lesions can then become secondarily infected with bacteria and lead to sepsis and mortality, although there's plenty of morbidity just from the herpes infection itself, which can really become widespread. These people need to be transferred. They need to go to the emergency department. They're probably going to need IV antivirals. Do not blow this off as just, oh, your eczema is getting worse. Let's throw some steroids at it. These people actually really need to be recognized and transferred. This can be so widespread. You've seen those kids who have terrible eczema that's all over them. Oh, it's awful. I saw a case of this and basically the kid got looked after in a burn center mm -hmm. because the burn doc's like, there's no skin on this kid and we have to treat them just like they've got like a 90% burn. So it's really can be quite severe. It's not always that bad, but that was very dramatic to me. I was like, we're sending this kid to a burn center because of herpes? What? Yeah. And that kid likely is not going to present to the urgent care, but recognizing this early when we can do something about it and transfer that child early, that's where we do our best work. What about the eyeballs? Eyeballs, we got the herpes keratitis. It's a lot like zoster keratitis. You might have heard of shingles in the eye. You can get HSV 1 and 2 infections in the eye also, usually HSV 1. And they present 
like corneal abrasions, severe eye pain, tearing, photophobia, foreign body sensation. And then when you fluorescein them, you see this dendritic pattern, these sort of branching pattern on the cornea. And so these you're going to want to consult ophthalmology or transfer to an ER that has ophthalmology capabilities for an evaluation, and they are definitely going to need antiviral treatment. All right. Another one to talk about is HSV encephalitis. So an inflammation of your brain, an infection of your brain. This is usually HSV1, but it can be HSV2. And anybody that presents with meningitis-like symptoms or encephalitis, or particularly somebody who looks like they have just meningitis, but they're seizing, we think about encephalitis and we want to add antivirals to that person. So this, I always thought, well, what the situation will be here is somebody's going to have a giant cold sore and then they're going to be confused and start seizing and I'm going to make the diagnosis. But in the vast majority of cases, there's no external dermatologic evidence that they're infected with HSV. They just present with seizures and altered mental status. And so depending on where you work, if you're in the urgent care, you're just going to be sending this person and in the ER, they're going to have to think about this diagnosis. But just know that it happens. It also happens in the little babies that get infected from mum who's got an active lesion during delivery. That's probably the single most common presentation. HSV2. All right, Mel, let's move on to HSV2, which is typically associated with genital herpes. We're going to talk about genital herpes, which is very, very common. And I just said HSV2, genital herpes, but we probably all should recognize that it also can happen with HSV1. And typically, orogenital contact can cause genital HSV1 infections and oropharyngeal HSV2 infections. And as I said before, overall, the incidence of HSV1-associated genital infection seems to be rising in general. And clinically, it doesn't make a lot of difference in how we diagnose or treat it. We can make this diagnosis clinically either way. We just won't be able to tell in a primary outbreak whether or not it's HSV1 or 2 by looking at it clinically. Yeah, and it looks like over time, even since we were in medical school, the crossover between HSV1 and HSV2 continues to expand. They're moving into each other's territory more and more and more. So what does this look like? So a primary outbreak. So this is the first time you've had it. And here again is the problem, is that a lot of people get infected and have no symptoms. And guess what that's good for? That's good for spreading it to the next person and the next person. So a lot of people are asymptomatic. People who are symptomatic, though, can have you know quite severe symptoms, lots of blistering, lots of fever, lots of headache, lots of myalgia, even sort of meningitis-like syndromes people can develop. They can have systemic symptoms, fever, and just feel terrible. But just remember that their spectrum is enormous from they don't even know they've got it to, wow, I've got all of these lesions and I'm feeling terrible and I'm febrile and I've got lymph nodes everywhere. So there is a huge spectrum of how these patients present. And it presents differently in men and women. So what do the women look like, Gita? Women with primary genital HSV infections tend to present more severely than men. You'll see these painful vesicles, blistering lesions, erythema can be all the way from the external genitalia way up into the vagina, and herpes cervicitis is also really common. Typically, you'll see lots of vaginal wall edema, erythema, along with the blisters. Maybe they have a watery discharge, and you can get dysuria and urinary retention. They're pretty common, and it might just be from the pain because it hurts so much to pee, but you can also have some effect on the sacral nerves by the herpes virus, and that can cause urinary retention too. So if you hear about pain and urinary retention in a woman, think primary HSV outbreak. Yes, and it's another one of those things I have definitely seen urinary retention caused by this. So it can be quite bad. In the males, it tends to be much less bad. It tends to just be a patch burning vesicles. And you look at it and you're like, okay, that's herpes. You can get urethritis. It can spread 
also to the scrotum. It could also be perianal, particularly if there's also receptive anal intercourse. So it can be more widespread, but generally not as bad, just sort of a painful lesion, sometimes with a bit of dysuria. Yeah. Any of the patients who engage in receptive anal intercourse can develop perianal HSV and rectal lesions and herpetic proctitis. So that's just something else to keep in mind. Making the diagnosis. So how do we make the diagnosis? There used to be this thing called a Zank smear. It was on every one of my tests. I didn't know what it was. I'm like, oh my God, I don't know how to do this. I'm a bad doctor. Thankfully, it's gone away. And now we do what to make the diagnosis? Mostly, well, we can make the diagnosis clinically. It's a pretty characteristic appearing syndrome. But if you want to do confirmatory testing, you can send a PCR test, which will confirm the HSV and differentiate between HSV 1 and 2. Now, it's really important, though, that you get a good sample because in old vesicles, the yield is low, and then you'll have this patient thinking that they don't actually have herpes when they do. So you want to make sure that you unroof a fresh vesicle with a sterile swab. You're going to swab the base of that ulcer. It hurts. You're going to apologize in advance, but you got to swab the base of that ulcer because you want those epithelial cells, which is where the HSV is. And then you send that off to the lab in your viral PCR culture. So just remember, Later in the illness, when things are crusting over, or if you don't have any fresh vesicles, it's going to be hard to get a really good sample and you might get a false negative. So let's talk about recurrence. So that was sort of the primary infections. They can be not so bad to really terrible. And then there's recurrence. Recurrence doesn't occur in everybody, but it certainly occurs in a significant subset. Usually, as with all of these infections, the recurrence is much less severe than the primary infection, but they can be reasonably bad. They have these lesions. They can last for seven to 10 days. And as you were saying, while there's lots of active lesions, that's when you're shedding most of the virus. But you can actually shed before you start getting lesions. Usually by the end of that, when it's all crusting and healing over, you're much less likely to be infectious. But also remember this, you can be an asymptomatic spreader. And so there's a subset of patients who they just don't really get any symptoms, but they are having an episode and they're shedding virus and they are infectious. So you have to tell these people, safe sex, condoms, you know, you can be spreading this stuff and that's not cool. Treatment. So let's talk about treatment, Mel. The mainstay, as we've been sort of saying throughout this segment, the mainstay are oral antivirals, such as acyclovir, famcyclovir, valcyclovir. I tend to reach for valcyclovir because of the ease of dosing, but acyclovir is much less expensive. It just has to be dosed more frequently. So my regimen, when someone comes in with an initial episode of genital herpes, typically I give them valcyclovir, a gram PO, Q12 for 10 days. And it's definitely most effective if you start within three days of onset. And then for recurrent episodes, I treat those two again earlier is better than later. Again, I think we have to emphasize the point that this does not cure the herpes. It can help reduce the severity and the length of their episodes, but it doesn't prevent recurrence and it doesn't cure the disease. But typically for those recurrent episodes, I'll give them 500 milligrams of valcyclovir PO Q12 for three days. And some people, they get really frequent recurrences, and some of them will wind up going on suppressive antiviral therapy, but we're not likely to be prescribing that from the urgent care. Herpes, herpes, bulberpes, banana, fana, fulferpes, herpes, oh! So, there it is. Lots of herpes. It's out there. It likes you. That's the nice thing about this. The herpes virus really likes you. You're delicious. It's nice to be liked. Yeah, they just wants to replicate. They're just trying to live, you know? It's all good. So if you want more on this, I believe we have a Corpendium chapter. Yep. So there's a Corpendium chapter on this. It's excellent. So uh, check the links in the show notes if you want to read more about herpes. 
Rural Medicine Talks. Greetings all, Vanessa Carty here, back for another Rural Medicine piece. I once again have the pleasure of being joined by Dr. Benjamin Matti. Welcome back to Rural Med, Ben, and let's jump right in as you set the scene for this particular case. This was a case during a first shift I had at a critical access hospital in the Pacific Northwest coast of the U.S. And many of you may not know what that is, and so I read here from Rural Health Org. And it says a critical access hospital is a designation given to eligible rural hospitals by the Centers for Medicaid and Medicare Services. That's the big government pay here in the US. Congress created this critical access hospital designation through the Balanced Budget Act of 1997 in response to over 400 rural closures during the 1980s and 90s. Since its creation, it's been amended a number of times. And basically, this keeps some hospitals open in places where it otherwise would not be financially viable, leaving whole rural areas without healthcare at all. So these places are out there with poor access. It was a small hospital, single provider in the emergency department, 24-hour shifts. There is a hospitalist in-house. They usually only accept minor admissions. So a big part of the job in the emergency department is setting up transfers. This particular day, which was my first shift, it was calm all day long. I got to do a lot of paperwork. I did some reading. I planned to hike through a old growth forest um, for the next day on my day off. And I was walking over to the nurse station in the evening to let them know I was going to sit down, and maybe lie down and take a nap. And they were wheeling a woman back in a wheelchair at that very moment. I looked over at her and she had an obvious facial droop. She wasn't moving the left side of her body. Talking briefly with her partner, he said that since the previous evening, so almost 24 hours ago, she had been acting confused, wasn't moving the left side of your body, and that her face looked kind of odd to him. He wasn't sure what medications she takes usually. Neither he nor she brought them with them. He did think that she was taking insulin, but hasn't been taking it for several days. Eventually, we got her on the monitor, and her blood pressure was 230 over 110. She was tachycardic in the one teens, satting well on room air. The glucometer read critically high in red. Trying to get a history from her, she was encephalopathic. She was oriented only to herself. She wouldn't follow commands. She was making up answers, confabulating with word soup and mumbles. And just on a quick glance at her, she had the facial droop and weakness in her left upper and lower extremity. So I was kind of getting into my NIH scale. And then the charge nurse came up to me saying the paramedics were calling ahead for a woman that fell from a ladder with obvious depressed skull fracture and was found pulseless when they got there. They had started CPR in the field and they got ROSC and they were less than five minutes away from arrival. All right, so your idea of going for a rest has gone out of the window, utterly and completely. So tell me how it felt in the emergency room after that call from the paramedic. There was this just frantic sort of energy emanating from her, which just spread throughout the staff and the whole department. So I huddled with the nurses that we had, and there were two nurses. They were already overwhelmed by just the thought of this traumatic arrest coming in. One of the nurses was young. She was just out of nursing school. The other nurse was a traveling nurse who was usually a floor nurse, but had been in the department for a couple months, so she had some experience there. Thankfully, the nursing supervisor was actually a former ED nurse, so he had some experience in the department and sort of knew where things were, which which would turn out to be very important. So what were your plans for managing patient one while your whole team was potentially monopolized by the lady who had had a traumatic arrest and who was about to arrive in your department imminently? Patient one was really ill. I was worried about a large vessel occlusion. I was worried about hypertensive encephalopathy. She was obviously hyperglycemic. 
But my thinking was she was probably at least 24 hours into her illness with not a lot of change over that time. So my thought was hopefully she could get some level of evaluation with labs and imaging so that after patient two came in and we were able to address whatever was going on with her, we could turn our attention back to patient one and have some sort of head start with her. So you're coming up with a plan for patient one, and I guess you're also simultaneously kind of heading into a team huddle in preparation for patient two. What sort of things were you talking about for the patient who was about to arrive? With patient two, I knew we had not a whole lot of time to huddle and prepare things. So I brought our nurses, the nurse soup, and the respiratory therapist who arrived, and I said, this this could be a really difficult case. If she had ROSC, we're going to probably need to support her blood pressure in some way. There's probably a really good chance that she might lose pulses again, so we need to have ACLS ready. We should have some medications ready for the TBI, Keppra, hypertonic saline, TXA. Luckily, by chance, the pharmacist also was passing through the department on his way home and gracefully offered to stay to help get all of these medications. The other thing I did is I grabbed the ultrasound, which I think probably was purchased during Bill Clinton's first term because it took five to 10 minutes to turn on and I really quickly discovered that the battery was not working. Fortunately, when I go to these critical access hospitals, I bring my handheld ultrasound. So I had that lined up and ready to be able to do an e-fast and sort of assess cardiac function. And it turned out it also helped with placing lines. Such a good rural doctor, always prepared. Boy Scouts, rural doctors, it's all kind of the same (laughs) thing, eh? So the respiratory therapist was there. She was somewhat new, so we took a couple minutes to talk through the procedure, and I really wanted to spend more time with her. But very soon after we started discussing, the the patient too arrived. But what we did talk about was we are going to use a video laryngoscopy to start because of the concern for C-spine injury. I really like in these cases to have a king tube because it can be placed, it's secure, and then I can turn my attention to other parts of the resuscitation and then go back and get a more definitive airway if I need to afterwards. But I didn't have that with me at that time, so we stuck with the plan. Let's get our video laryngoscope. Let's get everything ready and set up for that. And she set off to find a plug to plug it in, which was also surprisingly difficult. Oh, yeah, you'd think there would be plugs everywhere in emergency departments, eh? But it's amazing how much time you spend, like, crawling under stretchers and moving equipment looking for a plug. Taking a step back now and thinking back to just before patient two arrived, what was the feeling like in the emergency room then? How are the staff handling all this? So if I thought it was frantic to begin with, the, the level of chaos sort of spiraled more and more. It was a lot of people sort of frantically rummaging around, which is really less than ideal. And then the patient arrived pretty much right at that moment where I'm lamenting the level of chaos. How did patient number two look when she arrived? She was bradycardic in the 40s. Her pupils were fixed and dilated. GCS was three. She was being bagged with an oral airway. There was blood pooling behind her head and dripping off the gurney. The last pressure that the paramedics had was systolic 80 over, I don't remember, like 40 or something like that. Their report was that she fell from a ladder of 10 to 15 feet. It was unwitnessed. There was a lot of blood pooling around her. When they got there, she was pulseless, but they started CPR and regained pulses. So I turned to the pharmacist. I said, yeah, we're going with all the medications we talked about, hypertonic, TXA, Keppra, get norepinephrine started, draw up all of our ACLS medications because I don't have a great feeling about where this is going, and also ask for two units of PRBC because it did look like she lost a lot of blood. 
Now, you mentioned that this was your first shift in this particular hospital. So I imagine it all went super easily from there, right? Just like on TV, you called out commands and things were done magically? Yeah, everything just happened. It was great. <laughs> For me, it was somewhat of a new experience because in my other hospitals where I work, which are bigger trauma centers, things just sort of happen, right? All of a sudden, the patient is on the monitor and there's pads on them and the defibrillator is set up. In this case, that, that was not at all. So sort of the really basic things that I've never really thought about to address or ask for that, that I needed to start doing. Eventually, the hospitalist arrived, and I was able to sort of enlist his help in, in doing some of the initial survey. I had my point-of-care ultrasound and started doing an EFAS because I wanted to make sure that we weren't missing attention pneumo or pericardial effusion or free fluid in the abdomen that would have really changed the direction of things. And luckily, the initial EFAS was, was negative. So my focus at this point really turned to neurotrauma. After we secured the airway, I needed to take a step back. I repeated my EFAS just to make sure there wasn't something that developed like a tension pneumo after the change to positive pressure ventilation. I reassessed access and the only access we had was a really small IV in the dorsum of the hand. So I got the IO and, and placed the IO. And shortly after getting the IO, the monitor started beeping a little slower. And I looked up and I saw her braided down 50, 40, 30, 20. Checked pulses, they were absent. So at that point, we started CPR again. Fortunately, we got ROSC really quickly. The norepinephrine at that point finally was hung and we got it started. But she quickly braided down again, lost pulses. We did another round of ACLS started compressions, she regained pulses once again. So this sounds exhausting, these endless cycles of ROSC and then loss of pulses. And it's really hard for the team, like it's a, literally an emotional roller coaster, right? So how are you feeling at this point? And how is the team feeling? And also, I guess we haven't mentioned this yet, how is the patient's family? Our team, we, we still had that sort of initial resuscitation adrenaline surge, and we were being pushed forward by that. During this time, the family had actually arrived. And at some point, I guess the hospitalist had gone out there and spoke with them. He gave them an update about what was going on, got some history, and learned a little bit more about the patient. Turned out that she actually was in treatment for metastatic cancer. She was doing well, but the family believed that the patient wouldn't want any further CPR or resuscitation if she should lose pulses again. So at this point, with that history, kind of spoke out loud to the team, just went through the situation, summarize all the things that we had done as a group to help her, discuss that this seems like a really traumatic, devastating TBI, and brought it up to the team if there was any other thoughts or any other ideas about what we should do. Also discussed the information the family gave us about what the patient's wishes would be at this point. Shortly thereafter, patient braided down again. We lost pulses. She had asystole on the monitor. I looked with the ultrasound. There was no cardiac movement, and we pronounced her dead. We had a moment of silence. We took a few seconds to thank each other, and then we had to turn our attention to patient one at that point. Sorry to jump in again, but I really wanted to highlight two things here that you mentioned that were really, I think, really important. You said that you summarized out loud for your team the situation as it stood and what had been done up to that point. You went over your plan, and that's really a great chance for you as a team leader to collect your thoughts, particularly when you're having to jump in and out in terms of doing actual bedside care. And it's also a chance for other team members to weigh in with ideas and suggestions. And you can see that that really prompts people to reflect on what's been done 
and to kind of rally for what might come next. And also it kind of engages them with the actual case. It empowers them to say, I have a role in the care of this patient, which can be really, really powerful. And then another thing that you did was after the patient's death was pronounced, you took a moment of silence in memory of the patient. I think this is such a lovely way to honor the life that has now ended. And it also provides you and your team a chance to literally take a breath, a moment for yourself, reflect on what just happened before you turn around and head back out into the emergency room to continue your job. That extra moment really just to take a breath and sort of recompose and be with the patient, the deceased for for that few seconds there was really important. And I think it really helped us turn our attention back to the patient one who, if you remember, was hypertensive, cephalopathic, hemiplegia, and hyperglycemic. Unfortunately, because of all of the resources being directed to patient two, patient one didn't have very much done. So on exam, there wasn't that much different from her. So we had the patient transported over to the CT scanner for a CTA. With that short little pause, I was able to go back out and talk with the family of patient two. They were in tears because the hospitalist had told them that she passed. And we talked about her life, what they remembered about her and loved about her, and really just welcomed them to come back into the room once we had everything sort of clean and organized for them. Right as things were wrapping up, I got a phone call that the CTA was done. So I excused myself, went back in the department, quickly flipped through the images. I didn't see any big white area in the brain or any huge obvious blush coming from vessels. So I was relatively reassured that there wasn't anything that needed to be done right at that moment. So obviously this patient needed to be transferred and that was going to take a little while. So at that point, I basically sat by her bedside for three hours, intermittently on the phone, arranging her transfer, titrating her drips, managing her insulin, and doing neurochecks with some amount of frequency. And so she was successfully transferred. Do you have any idea what her outcome was? The next time I was there, I followed up, and it sounds like she did well. She was discharged back into her usual state of health from what I was told. Oh, that's great. That's great. So these were challenging cases for any small emergency room, and you had two of them, and they came in at basically the same time, which always leads to new and exciting challenges that you might not have anticipated. So what things did you take away from this case? Um, Any things that you've reflected on looking back? It was a great learning situation. I realized how important it is to know your staff, and if you don't know them, how important it is to be able to read what's going on. So some, some amount of emotional intelligence and empathy The other thing that I think was really challenging was triaging tasks, triaging attention, triaging resources that we had. So I would have liked to have had a little bit of a calmer, less chaotic beginning, but we needed to get all that stuff. If if I had taken any time to sort of bring the chaos level down, we wouldn't have had an IO at the bedside. One thing that I've seen that often happens is the most junior person in the room gets to be the one who goes off and looks for things and is sent off. But often the most junior person in the room is the person who has the least idea of where anything is. And so as hard as it can be to send your nursing supervisor off looking for things, sometimes they will know where the things are the fastest. I've been in many code situations where, you know, there's a poor nurse who's been on the job for three days and they're sent to look for this piece of equipment that we haven't used in a year. And, you know, she doesn't come back, you know, because she doesn't know where it is and she gets lost and it can be very challenging. So sometimes having the uh, more senior people do the quick running gopher trips can be very helpful, but it's hard to do that because you also want them at the bedside. Oh man, that's such a great point. 
You can lose a pair of hands for 30 minutes trying to get some piece of equipment, or you can lose a pair of hands for 10 seconds. <laughs> you know, that's another equation that needs to be thought about. But thank you so much for sharing this story and for the reflections that you have on this case and for the care of people in, uh, you know, under-resourced areas. There's extra challenges that come up, which is why rural medicine is fun and exciting, but also can be stressful and terrifying. So <laughs> thank you so much, Ben. Thank you, Vanessa. It's wonderful being here. Primary Care Medical Abstracts with Ken and Steve. Welcome to the March episode of PCMA. Joining me as always to critically appraise the papers and put a skeptical eye on a publication is my partner in skepticism, Steve Brown. Very happy to be here, Ken. Thank you. Oh, I love marching through these papers with you. And we had a little pre-convo about how great the first paper is. So should we tease them longer or should we just dive right in? Did you intentionally do the marching through the papers for March 2023? Marching? Ah, uh, yes. Yeah. Beware the Ides of March and beware my dad jokes. Right. Exactly. So let's not have the audience have to wait any longer. The Ides of March are come. Paper one. We're going to start with abstract number one, and it's called Compare, a prospective cohort study correcting and monitoring 58 misreported trials in real time. And this was published in a journal called Trials et al. It's a little bit older, 2019. The reason it's a little older, I mean, here we are in 2023, the reason it's a little older is this paper was suggested by a listener. Yes, we listen. So please send in your suggestions. And the lead author, when I got the paper, oh, he's a rock star of science, Ben Goldacre. He wrote an amazing book called Bad Science. So the objective of this study was to assess the prevalence of outcome misreporting in what journals did when the issue was pointed out to them. So these authors... They looked at five high-impact journals. I don't need to tell you what they are. You probably can guess what the five high-impact journals are. These journals endorsed the use of something called the Consolidated Standards of Reporting Trials, or the Consort Guidelines. So they say they follow these guidelines. So they looked at all published trials over a six-week period from these five journals, and they were assessed for their published outcome, but then they compared it to their published pre-trial protocol. So what did they say they were going to do? And the consort statement was used as the gold standard. Misreported outcomes resulted in a letter being sent to the journal. So if they found any discrepancies, they'd send off a, a letter to the journal. And then the responses from the journal were collated. So they found 67 trials that were identified and three quarters of them correctly reported their primary outcome. So if you're a glasses half full, you could say, wow, three <laughs> out of four, isn't that super? If you're more like us, one out of four misreported their primary outcome. And it was about 50-50 for their secondary outcomes. So when they looked at the 58 out of the 67, that's 87% of the trials were sent a letter. So a correction letter was sent out to those trials. And 40% published the letter. And that means 60% didn't, 
so the majority didn't publish the letter, and it took them over three months to publish that. Some journals didn't respond positively to this misreporting being pointed out either. So, Steve, post-publication peer review, it is a foundational aspect of the scientific method, and one in four trials not correctly reporting their primary outcome, I think, is a failure of both peer review and the editorial process. Reading the defensive responses from the journals was a little shocking and very interesting. I mean, one journal, not to be named JAMA, they said they wouldn't publish any of the letters that were submitted identifying problems. Uh Uh-uh. Journals would not have these types of problems if there was some mechanism in place to cross-reference the pretrial published outcomes with the submitted manuscripts that were being published before they were being published. So, you know, if you identified any discrepancies, then they could be sent back to the authors and said, hey, you said you were going to do this. Three out of four times that would work out. But one out of four times, hey, you said you were going to do this. Now you're not publishing that. So could you please give us an explanation and we'll review that explanation and it could be perfectly fine. But we need to have that identified and not put on the readers to go figure this out. I'm so glad that one of our listeners sent this in because this study is genius. I love that the authors of this paper wrote letters you know, in real time to the journals saying these were mistakes and then documented that. I love how they describe the letters that they wrote. We aim to conduct all correspondence extremely politely and respond on matters of fact. So they weren't flaming like you or I might have done when we write letters to the editor. They just wrote (laughs) very reasonable responses. And the response of the journals is unbelievable. New England Journal and JAMA rejected all the letters And the editors didn't even really seem to understand what consort was. Annals suggested that outcome switching is acceptable if the main results of the study are unaffected. Editors didn't really understand consort and even the importance of pre-specifying outcomes. And the New England Journal, this was the best response. Some aspects of consort are useful, but we do not and never have required authors to comply with consort, even though they're on the list of journals that clearly use consort. Yeah, a little defensive, I thought, yeah. Yeah. We think the does protest too much. <laughs> right. You know, uh, science shouldn't be like that. It's like, oh, hey, yeah, thanks for pointing that out. We're going to take that under advisement and we're going to go back and we're going to update our process to make sure that we give the best information, the best product, the most transparent information possible so patients get the best care. So I found it a bit off-putting that these high-impact journals responded in that way. It strongly makes you wonder what the purpose of journals are if it's not to produce the best science. Yeah, to disseminate high-quality information. Is that their goal? Hmm. Bottom line. Be skeptical of anything you read, including the outcomes published in high-impact journals. Paper two. Abstract number two is antibiotics versus no treatment for asymptomatic bacteria in residents of aged care facilities, a systematic review and meta-analysis in the British Journal of General Practice 2022. So lots of us take care of older patients in group settings. In this journal, they refer to those as residential aged care facilities. And Urinary tract infections are hard to diagnose, and they may present with nonspecific symptoms in these patients. 
And it's also difficult to distinguish asymptomatic bacteria from an actual urinary tract infection. Lots of our patients may receive antibiotics unnecessarily. That comes with harms and antibiotic resistance. And if you're doing dipstick urinalysis, we might be overusing this, which can lead to this cascade of this concerns of overuse of antibiotics. So these authors conducted a systematic review to find, appraise, and report studies evaluating the effectiveness, harms, and adverse events associated with antibiotic treatment for older patients with asymptomatic bacteria who lived in these residential aged care facilities. They used the standard Cochrane method. They searched all the electronic databases that you would expect them to, clinical trial registries. They looked at the references of the included studies, and I thought this was very cool. They did this check that they called a forward-backward reference check, which looks at all the studies that preceded it, but also the studies that may have referenced that study in the, in the past. So what are the results? Nine randomized control trials, 1,391 patients, so kind of small. Trials were mainly in Greece, but also in the U.S. and Canada, and there was only one study that was published after 1998, so these are older trials. Two of the studies used a placebo comparator, but seven of them, most of them, used no therapy as the control. Overall, there was a moderate risk of bias, and for some outcomes, there was high heterogeneity. There was no difference in mortality, development of asymptomatic bacteria, and complications for treating asymptomatic bacteria versus not treating. But there were higher adverse effects with a relative risk of 5.6. There was also a higher bacteriologic cure with a relative risk of about two, but that's obviously a disease-oriented outcome or a lab-oriented outcome. And so these authors conclude that harms and lack of clinical benefit of antibiotic use for older patients in care facilities may outweigh the benefits. And this actually aligns with the 2015 Cochrane review that showed no difference between antibiotics and no treatment for death complications or the development of symptomatic UTI. And so I guess one thing that I was having a hard time with, and I wonder if this is part of the heterogeneity, is why were these patients having their urine tested? Was this essentially just like a screening? Like, let's just, you know, check everybody's urine. So I'm presuming that's what it was, because otherwise it wouldn't be called asymptomatic bacteria. But it still doesn't help me with the fundamental question if my older patient in a care facility has a nonspecific symptom, you know, they're a little more sleepy or they're confused, should I get a urine dipstick test? And if I do, under what circumstances should I test and treat for a urinary tract infection? Yeah, you touched on a lot of the really highlights there. And it's asymptomatic bacteria. I was reading it as in they didn't have any urinary tract symptoms, you know, so It wasn't frequency, it wasn't dysuria, there wasn't hematuria, pelvic pain, maybe even a fever or something like that. But I bet it was, "Eh, grandma's just a little off today. Yeah. Maybe we should dip her urine. Oh, bingo, we're done. You know, and that's the problem because we don't know if that, you know, that dipstick that lights up has anything to do with why grandma might be a little off and it might have some premature closure and some anchoring bias, because maybe grandma bumped her head a few days earlier and she's got, you know, a large subdural developing. And so I'm, I'm really concerned about that. You also mentioned that these are older data. Yeah. Three were from the 1980s, the best musical era. Obviously. 
Five were from the 90s and only one from 2007. So the data was old and so were the patients. <laughs> and it's hard to undo sort of community standard practice because we see this so often. And I think it comes with that intervention bias. Well, you know, what do I do? I've got a positive dipstick. What do I do? What you do is you take a look at the patient and you use the best imaging test you have. And the best imaging test you have is the back of your retina. You go see the patient <laughs> and you look at them and, um, you know, just because it's a, a bacterial cure, right? You know, that's, you mentioned that was a loo, a lab-oriented outcome or a do, a disease, not a poo, a patient-oriented outcome. And again, the harms, the harms. If there isn't any benefit, all you got is harms then. So yeah, good paper to have in there. Bottom line. Treating older patients in care homes with antibiotics for asymptomatic bacteria is not likely to be beneficial and is likely to... Paper three. Abstract number three. Randomized clinical trial, individual versus group hypnotherapy for irritable bowel syndrome, and it was in the Journal of Elementary Pharmacology and Therapeutics 2022. Now, last month, we talked about the FODMAP diet with Steve taking the lead, and that was to treat irritable bowel syndrome. This month, listen to my voice. Relax. <laughs> Go to a nice place. Are you on the beach? Focus on the beach and the waves. Yeah, we're going to talk about hypnosis. So the objective of this study was to see if group therapy was as good as individual hypnotherapy. So they've already a priori I said, this works, which we'll get into later. So they use the North Carolina protocol, which is a scripted method of progressive relaxation, which is why I started talking like this. And suggestions of soothing imagery. Let's go to the beach. It's March. We need a March break. And sensations focused on individuals' symptoms. And the justification for this treatment? You know me, Steve. <laughs> I go back and pull the primary studies. A 1984 study that had 30 patients in it, two observational studies, and a systematic review of six small unblinded randomized control trials. Mm. Do you think I'm convinced? Mm. <laughs> I'm guessing no. Oh, you're really so far out on that limb. <laughs> so they took adult patients 18 to 67 years of age in Sweden, and they had to have Rome 3 criteria for irritable bowel syndrome and refractory to other treatments. So these are the people that weren't doing well with their irritable bowel syndrome, not just everybody who came in. Participants received eight sessions of gut-directed hypnotherapy over a 12-week period. Hypnotherapy was provided by a nurse who had experience in cognitive behavioral therapy, hypnotherapy, and experiences in managing people with IBS in individual sessions or groups of six to eight people. All participants got an audio file of hypnotic relaxation exercises to take home and use daily. And then for their primary outcome, they looked at a change in an IBS severity scoring system, or IBS-SSS. Maybe it's IBS-S cubed, which is a five-item scale rated 0 to 100. I wasn't familiar with this scale. 0 to 100, the max score you can get on this scale is 500. And a 50-point drop, so you want to have a lower score, a 50-point drop is considered something that would be clinically significant, so like 10%. They had a bunch of secondary outcomes. They got 
119 patients into this. These were middle-aged people. 41 years of age was the mean. And three-quarters were female. Both individual and group patients had an IBSSSS score and drop of 100 points. But there was no statistical difference whether they were in a group session or an individual session. One other little part of their methodology that I was looking at is that this study started over 10 years ago in 2011, finished in 2016, and then took six more years to get published. Hmm. Okay. So this was a single-centered study with one hypnotherapist providing treatment, which limits the external validity because we know that relationships are important. So would this replicate without that one good nurse who had all this skill and ability? They did not ask participants thoughts on hypnotherapy prior to being included. So what do you think of this? Are you into hypnotherapy? Is this something that you accept or believe in? A total of 21 out of 25 patients were not included for social or, quote, other reasons. Well, perhaps they got pitched this idea and went, hypnotherapy? Yeah, I don't think that's going to work for me and declined. I don't know. It just says other, but 21 out of 25 patients for social or other reasons out of a study of 119. So what impact would their preconceived notions of hypnotherapy have on the results? I don't know. There was no control arm, and they say it's because hypnotherapy had been proven to work. I'm still skeptical. I don't accept that claim. How about having an active comparator group? This is what I thought, Steve. How about you have the group, you know, hypnotherapy, you know, if that's what you want to, you know, you randomize into that, but you get hypnotherapy. But you could be randomized into a book club that you get together once a week with a group session and you talk about this great new book that you're all reading. Or you go out and participate in yoga. Or you do a pottery class or something, some group activity like that. And see if it has the same decrease in the IBSSSS score. Yeah, it seems highly likely that whatever benefit is shown is because someone who's very caring and has a lot of experience with irritable bowel syndrome is spending a lot of time helping you figure out your symptoms of your irritable bowel syndrome. Yeah, I think the real purpose of this trial was to see if we could leverage this one individual's person's time. Say, listen, you're doing one-to-one therapy. It seems to be working. So maybe we can just have you do eight people at a time and we could time leverage you and use you more efficiently. Right. And you have to wonder if they just, if someone was like, hey, we need a publication. Let's look back in our old data from five years ago and let's, let's write this up. See if we could justify it post-talk. Yeah. Let's see what you think of my bottom line. Bottom line. If you think hypnotherapy may help your patient who has IBS, it's reasonable. But try to remember, it may just be a generalized reduction of stress and not be due to a specific action of hypnotherapy. Yep, sounds about right. Paper four. Abstract number four is non-pharmacologic interventions to lengthen sleep duration in healthy children, a systematic review and meta-analysis from JAMA Pediatrics, September 2022. Oh, sleep. It's elusive for so many of us, has important impacts on health and, and really important in kids for development and well-being. But data shows that our kids continue to get less and less sleep. And we don't actually really know the strategies to increase sleep in children and adolescents. So these authors performed a systematic review to review non-pharmaceutical interventions to improve sleep duration. And they used the PRISMA guidelines to process the data. 
The main outcome was sleep duration measured in minutes. And the literature search included all the databases. They also looked at clinicaltrials.gov and WHO trials databases to make sure there wasn't anything that they missed that was unpublished. So what are the results of their search? They found 45 randomized controlled trials with over 13,000 kids from age 18 months to 19 years. Three trials showed, I know this will be shocking to you, Ken, earlier bedtimes were associated with 47 minutes more sleep. This was published in the Journal of the Obvious. The other 42 trials showed a mean of seven minutes more sleep, and these were a combination of all kinds of different interventions, behavioral interventions, environmental change, exercise, music therapy, art therapy, education programs. So it's not surprising that the studies would have high heterogeneity, I squared of 87%, and many of them showed the risk of bias, especially in blinding, which we just talked about on the last study. This is called performance bias when people aren't really blinded. And they looked over the data and there was no association and outcomes with either socioeconomic disadvantage or age. So, so much variety in these studies makes you wonder kind of, should they really even be grouped together? Like 23 of the studies were at school, 14 were delivered by phone, text, or online. And not totally surprising that the best outcome came from only three studies, because maybe if you had more studies, it might lead to regression to the mean. But still, I think a reasonable take-home from this, if you want a child to sleep more, put them to bed earlier. (laughs) I like that. The Journal of Obvious. You mentioned the heterogeneity. One of the heterogeneous points was the age range was from 18 months to 19 years of age. Do I need to tell listeners that there's a big difference between (laughs) getting a toddler to go to bed and getting a teenager to go to bed? The heterogeneity, if you want to be objective about it, the objective measure on heterogeneity for that I-squared test, 87% for their primary outcome. And so I had here perhaps a narrative review. There's nothing wrong with a narrative review. The most important part of a systematic review and meta-analysis is the systematic review And then realize sometimes it's not appropriate to put that stuff together. In my experience, to get our children to go to bed earlier was to read to them at night. And the likelihood that I would fall asleep first was (laughs) very high. That wasn't in the studies. Yeah, the child would come down. One of my kids would come down and go, Mom, Dad's asleep now on the bed again, (laughs) holding the book. But, you know, we had three kids that ended up, you know, using flashlights to read under their covers at night because they loved reading. But I'm not just going to go with my anecdotal experience. Oh, yes, I have references that there's evidence that reading before bedtime increases the length and the quality of your sleep. And so you started with a little bit about, you know, about the sleep and you seemed very Shakespearean. So it reminded me of to sleep, perchance to dream. Yeah, our kids should be sleeping more. Bottom line. Weak evidence from this meta-analysis suggests the best non-pharmacologic way to get more sleep for kids is to have them go to bed earlier. Paper five. Abstract number five. Malignancy assessment using gene identification in captured cell algorithm 
for the prediction of malignancy in women with a pelvic mass, the Journal of Obstetrics and Gynecology 2022. Now, I spent a lot of my time in a car going back and forth to the hospital. And so I listened to some satellite radio and it must be important if it's on satellite radio as an ad, you know, that's how you get your finger on the pulse of where research is going. And so the number of times now I've heard, hey, do you want to detect cancer using a simple blood test? Call this 1-800 number. So the objective of this study was to see if analyzing peripheral blood using a multiplex gene expression alone or in combination with serum biomarkers accurately detected malignancy in women with a known pelvic mass. So this was a convenient sample of 200 women with a pelvic mass identified on imaging three months before surgery or biopsy, and they couldn't have had cancer in the last five years except if it was a skin cancer like a basal cell or a squamous cell cancer. And at the end, they had 183 people, so just over 90% could actually be evaluated out of that 200 sample size of convenient people. Blood was drawn 30 days before surgery or biopsy. Messenger RNA, or mRNA, from the captured cells was analyzed for the expression of 72 different gene transcriptions and a variety of biomarkers. So they were throwing everything against the wall there. Mean age was middle-aged, 56, almost two-thirds being postmenopausal. Well, that makes sense based on their age. And 90% were white. 57% of those were diagnosed with a benign disease. So the majority had a benign disease. 9% with low malignancy potential tumors, about a quarter with ovarian cancer, 8% with non-ovarian gynecologic cancer, and then a few, just a few percentages, I think it was three or something, two or 3% with a non-gynecological metastatic disease. So they picked up metastatic disease. That's what the mass was. One combination of eight genes and four serum biomarkers had the best area under the curve, 95%. So they're overfitting their data and they're trying to find what fits best. They had this uh, proprietary system called MAGIC. And MAGIC stood for Malignancy Assessment Using Gene Identification in Captured Cells. And this algorithm significantly outperformed all the individual genes. So if you use their fancy proprietor algorithm, you could find stage three or stage four ovarian cancer 99% of the time. Lots of problems with this study, but uh, since I'm hearing about it on satellite radio that I don't want people rushing in for that blood test that I'm sure is, you know, pennies, pennies a test. Sarcasm alert. This was a convenient sample, which introduces selection bias. And adding to that bias is referral bias. This isn't all comers with a pelvic mass. These are all comers with a pelvic mass who get referred to a specialized clinic. They had to be referred to a gyne-onc clinic. We should consider this study a derivation set. And there's nothing wrong with doing a derivation set as trying to start a clinical prediction algorithm, but it would need to be externally validated uh, to consider, you know, people outside of a single tertiary care center where 90% of the women were white. Doing these studies, it tries to find the best combination of genes and biomarkers But really what they need to do is a prospective validation study to see if it actually pans out and perform this in consecutive patients, all comers from a general population of a mixed group of people coming out of the community. And then I might start going, hmm, okay. So we need to be mindful that it was also an industry-funded study 
which of course can lead to interpretation of the results being somewhat biased. Yeah, I'm glad you picked this paper because I think in, you know, if you and I are doing this for another five or 10 years, we're going to be seeing a lot of these papers. There's circulating tumor cells for colon cancer screening now. And the biggest thing about this is it's a fishing expedition to find which of these 72 markers. It doesn't mean that one of them won't end up being useful, but it means that they're going to have to then test it, as you said, prospectively. And the biggest, biggest thing here is that these patients had symptoms. They had identified pelvic masses, and then we're looking at the test. So we have no idea what's going to happen in a screened population and how many patients you would have to study for that. They have a really great table that looks at the sensitivity and the specificity and the number of abnormal tests. And just like everything, if you dial up the sensitivity, you're dialing down the specificity. So how do we find a line where we're not falsely doing surgery on people that don't need it or you know, missing somebody who actually has the disease. And this is the, the pelvic masses and especially ovarian cancer. They've done randomized controlled trials of pelvic ultrasound and CA-125, and it shows no improvement in outcomes, partially because this is a very rapidly progressing disease, and you end up doing a lot of abdominal surgeries unnecessarily for false positives. So I think it's possible that tumor cells may be helpful in some kinds of cancer for screening. I'm very suspicious that it won't pan out for pelvic, especially ovarian cancer, which is the one that that we dread the most. Yeah, I I share your uh, skepticism there. I'm concerned that, you know, with a blood test, are we going to find a blood test that, you know, is 100%, not to rule in, but to rule out? Because if we get 100% sensitive, we pick up all the true positives we're going to have a ton of false negatives, right? right? And that's going to lead to more biopsies. What we really want is, can you get a biomarker test that says, if everything is negative, you don't have it. Yeah. And I'm not sure for a solid organ malignancy or something like that, we're going to get to the point where the negative likelihood ratio is so good that we're going to say, you know what? Yeah, you got this mass. We don't know what it is. So we're not biopsying it because these biomarkers look good. Yeah. Bottom line. It's too early to use these types of genetic testing plus or minus biomarkers from peripheral blood to accurately predict malignancy in women with a pelvic mass. Paper six. Abstract number six, effect of colonoscopy screening on risks of colorectal cancer and related death. New England Journal of Medicine, October 2022. It's possible that you already heard about this study because it got a lot of press and a lot of people are talking about it. Is screening with colonoscopy helpful? So we know that colon cancer is an important and potentially preventable cause of death, and that the USPSTF recommends, as of 2021, they updated an A recommendation for adults age 50 to 75. In our practice, we're hammered on this quality measure. We'd love to improve our rates of screening for colon cancer. And so these authors conducted a long-term study in Poland, Norway, Sweden, and the Netherlands between 2009 and 2014. They randomized patients in a one-to-two ratio to receive an invitation for a single screening colonoscopy or usual care. So there was twice as many patients that got usual care. And interestingly, invited patients were in areas 
where they would not normally be screened for colonoscopy. So back in this time, in those regions, no one would have gotten a screening colonoscopy. And the primary endpoint was risk of colorectal cancer and related death. And the secondary endpoint was death from any cause. There was data available for 84,585 patients. So the really important part of the study is that this is an invitation to colon cancer screening because it turned out that 42% of the invited group had a screening colonoscopy. So what are the results? 42% had a colonoscopy. 15 people had a major bleed from the colonoscopy. None had perforation or screening-related death. They followed these patients for 10 years. So this is pretty impressive. That was the median follow-up. In the intention to screen population, this is people who were sent an invitation, whether or not they got the colonoscopy, 0.98% in the invited group had colon cancer diagnosed over that 10 years versus 1.2% in the usual care group. So the number needed to invite NNI, if you will, 455 to prevent a case of colorectal cancer. No difference in death from colon cancer or overall mortality. And when you look at the graph, it's not totally surprising that the incidence of colon cancer is increased in the beginning if you get a colonoscopy in the first one to two years, but then decreases by year three for the people that got the screening. They also report a per-protocol analysis. So this means if assuming all the people that got invited to screening actually were screened, and they report that it would reduce colon cancer-related death. They report their decrease in risk of colon cancer is comparable to the studies of flexible sigmoidoscopy. And we know that the impact of screening can be blunted even more now compared to this time as the treatment for colon cancer is better now, and the rates of colon cancer are decreasing. And also, we don't know if this is going to be generalizable to a North American population. Poland, Norway, Netherlands, and Sweden all have higher rates of colon cancer deaths in the U.S. by about two to five per hundred thousand. So lots to ponder here. Ken, what were your thoughts? Well, I really like this pick that you had for this month because there's so much to chew on from a, it all depends. We have the data. Here's the data. It's the interpretation that's so important. Uh, 42% accepted screening. Well, that's lower than what we're seeing here in North America. I mean, screening rates are what? What do you get for screening? Do you get 42%? You get higher percentages? Well, our office is below the national average, which is about 72%. Yeah. Cause I was going to say it's about 60 to 70% yeah. in North America for screening. And so you could say, well, you know, this is low. And so the purists would say, well, do an intention to treat analysis. Uh, what we're talking about is we randomized and start, start the clock running from randomization. So there's the important statistic. Whereas the per protocol people would say, listen, how can you, how can you benefit from a colonoscopy if you didn't have one? Yeah. Right. So, so I get it. There's different ways to look at the data. The per protocol, you could say, look, 50% reduction in death. Oh yeah, but that's relative reduction. It actually went from 0.3% to 0.15%, which is a 50% reduction, but it gives a number needed to screen of 667. You know, the best data that we have is from FlexSig. 
So the flex sig data is the best data we have. But people will say, well, you're only going up one side of the bow. What about on the other side of the bow? You're not seeing the whole bow. How can you diagnose, you know, breast cancer if you only, you know, mammogram one breast or something like that? You know, so there's there's give and take, there's limitations and strengths. Hey, you you only followed it out for 10 years, but it takes longer for these polyps to transition and your your yield will be lower. How many polyps did you actually get? So I think at the end of the day, we have to be really honest and transparent about how we interpret this. And I've seen some interpretations out there, some hot takes that say colon cancer screening doesn't work. That's an over-interpretation of this one paper. It was a very well done randomized control trial. I think what the conclusions need to be is not that screening colonoscopies don't work, is that there was not a statistical significant improvement in colorectal cancer deaths using an intention-to-treat analysis for all-cause mortality after 10 years in this population. That's what it showed. It didn't show, you know, different populations, different screening, different polyp rates, all of that type of stuff needs to be put in there. So you can't conclude on one study something doesn't work. It just wasn't demonstrated to work in this study. It doesn't mean we should conclude that colonoscopies can't work or screening because I think, you know, screening is important. We just have to make sure we have got the correct evidence and make sure we don't over-interpret or under-interpret the evidence. Good news is we've got some trials. One's underway in Sweden. I, I, you know, when I saw this, I looked it up and I said, well, geez, how many other trials or RCTs are going on? There's one in Sweden and there's, um, I think, two in the US looking at this issue. So we'll have more to talk about this in the future. But sit down with your doctor. You know, If you're listening, you're the clinician, obviously. Sit down with your patients and have that open conversation about it and be honest and transparent with people about the evidence and that there's uncertainty. Yeah. And remember, there are at least two stool-based tests that the USPSDF says are equivalent for value in screening. So if your patient's not interested in a colonoscopy, which is a very reasonable thing to not be interested in, then there are other ways to screen also. Yeah. And that's what we're doing up here in Canada. We're, We're not scoping everybody. We've got a slightly different recommendation than you guys do. Bottom line. Inviting people to receive a colonoscopy decreases colon cancer incidence, but not mortality. Paper seven. Abstract number seven, single dose psilocybin for the treatment resistant episode of major depression, New England Journal of Medicine, 2022. Now, earlier in this episode, we did a little hypnosis. Now I'm going to get psychedelic here. (laughs) we covered actually a paper, when was it? I think it was August of 2021. We did a a paper looking at uh, psilocybin for treating major depression. And our bottom line from that JAMA randomized control trial, and it was a small trial, is we need better evidence. So here we have more evidence. So the objective of this trial was to identify how effective were certain doses of psilocybin to assess the safety of a synthetic proprietary formulation of psilocybin in patients with treatment-resistant major depressive episode. So this was an industry-funded phase two, multinational, double-blinded, randomized trial of three doses. And so just to remind everybody, phase one is just about safety and tolerability. (laughs) Can we use this without hurting people? Phase two is more about does it work? And then phase three is does it work better than what we already have? So they included adults 18 years of age and older who were diagnosed with depression using the DSM-5. 
and they were resistant to treatment. So these are the people that are going to be hard to treat. It's not just a first episode of depression. They've tried other things. And Steve, they had your favorite run-in period where they had three to six weeks to taper off the antidepressant medications that they were on. And for their primary outcome, they looked at a change from baseline to three weeks, so kind of short, on this depression score that went from zero to 60. And higher scores meant worse. So higher scores were depressed, zero scores where you're not depressed. And again, about a 10%, so six-point drop being clinically significant. They tested three doses, a one-milligram dose, a 10-milligram dose, and a 25-milligram dose. The mean age of the population that they got into the study was 40. It's about a 50-50 split, male-female, but 92% were white. They had a decrease in this depression score, was minus 12, so that's an improvement, in the 25 milligrams, about minus 8 in the 10 milligrams, and about minus 5 points improvement. So everybody improved, even on the 1 milligram. But the difference between the 25 and the 1 milligram was statistically and considered clinically significant, but not the 10 milligrams versus the 1 milligrams. And not surprisingly, the higher the dose, the more side effects you had, more adverse events. There are a few major limitations to this trial design. One is that you don't have an active comparator group, but that's not traditionally what you do in a phase two trial. You're not looking at usual care or comparing it to something else, but that's part of one of the limitations. So to not overinterpret this, we don't know if it's better, worse, or the same as standard therapy. It's likely that the participants were unblinded. Hey, take one milligram of psilocybin or 25 times that dose and see how you feel. The researchers didn't address the integrity of blinding. It would have been nice to, after they did these doses, say, hey, do you think you were in the one milligram group or do you think you were in the 25 milligram group? I'd be surprised if most people couldn't have predicted which group they were in. And finally, it was industry funded, which we've talked about before, and it just should increase our skepticism, not negate the results or invalidate everything. Yeah, I think this is fascinating. And that's obviously why the New England Journal decided to to include it. So kudos to the authors. They definitely used clinically relevant outcomes. They looked at both remission at three weeks and improvement of 50% in three weeks. They put the scale right in the abstract that it was zero to 60. Sometimes you have to del, you know, like dig to find what their what their outcome was. Number needed to treat five for response at three weeks with the 25 milligram dose compared to the one milligram dose and also remission at three weeks, although it was not sustained by the time you got to 12 weeks. I don't think very many of us with depression would say, hey, I'm, I'm, I'm happy as long as I have, I'm better at three weeks, I'm fine with how I am in, in three months from now. Yeah, if I still feel, if I feel like crap at three months, that's okay. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, no, well, I and, hear what you're and, saying. Yeah, short term. And this is a very high intensity intervention because they had therapy sessions, multiple therapy sessions before the dose and to quote, prepare for the psychedelic experience. And they built a whole special room that was like a calming room for the person to sit in. And there was like music and yeah, like, yeah, just exactly. (laughs) I don't know if they had lava lamps or what they had. Mellow. Yeah. Mellow out. Exactly. And you know, obviously the reason they're trying this is because we don't have great treatments for depression, especially like they, they mentioned third, fourth, or fifth line treatment. So very intense intervention, maybe beneficial, probably too early to know, but also what a hard disease to treat. 
Yeah, and you mentioned something in there that you know this was industry funded and that they had good methods. There is actually research that shows that industry funded studies often tend to have better methodology, better like higher methodology standards than non industry funded. It's just a matter of how they're actually gaming it, you know, because they're good at using the methods to um, uh, find what they want to find. Bottom line. We still do not have high quality evidence to suggest the use of psilocybin to treat major depression. Paper 8. Abstract number 8. Comparative effectiveness and safety between apixaban, dabigatran, adoxaban, and rivaroxaban among patients with atrial fibrillation a cohort study, Annals of Internal Medicine, November 2022. We know now that most of our patients with atrial fibrillation that were preventing stroke were using DOAX, direct oral anticoagulants, and current guidelines actually recommend DOAX over warfarin in patients with atrial fibrillation. But there's no head-to-head trials comparing the DOAX, so how do I know which one to pick? These authors conducted a multinational population-based cohort study. They looked through the EMRs in France, Germany, United Kingdom, and the United States. And the population of patients were newly diagnosed AFib patients who were started on DOACs between 2010 and 2019. The outcomes they looked at were stroke or embolism, intracranial hemorrhage, GI bleed, and all-cause mortality. They followed the patient's by looking through their charts until they had an outcome, one of those outcomes, they stopped the medicine or they switched the medicines, and then they used a fancy statistical jujitsu propensity score to compare the agents. There was no financial conflict of interest reported, and I'm not sure I've ever seen this. They reported no funding. Just yeah, no funding. Well, I'll jump in on there. The, the study itself wasn't funded, but I actually went in, pulled the authors because they had author sheets that they had to submit. And there was multiple financial conflicts of interest with the authors. It's just this study wasn't given money to do an evaluation. Okay. I know the listeners are shocked once again. This is quite a shock. On the other hand, it's not surprising in the least. (laughs) So what are the results? They had over 500,000 new DOAC users, and over 70% of them were 65 or over. About half of the patients were given apixaban, 11% dabigatran, 22% adoxaban, and 33% rivaroxaban. When they compared and did the statistical jujitsu, there were no differences between the four agents compared to each other in stroke or embolism, intracranial hemorrhage, or all-cause mortality. There was one difference, which was apixaban caused fewer GI bleeds than the other three drugs in head-to-head comparison by a relative risk reduction of about 20 to 30%. And so if you had a GI bleed rate of about 3% per year, which is what you saw kind of in the comparators, a 30% reduction would be about one less GI bleed per 100 people per year. This is an observational study it would be very, very costly and hard to do a head-to-head RCT. It would have to be very large because the outcome differences are pretty small. And I, I like the, a term that they used in here. They reported all the outcomes that they looked at to avoid what they called P-hacking, which is a perfect name for basically 
measuring a bazillion things and then just finding the ones that have a significant P value and then reporting those. So P hacking. And say that we didn't P hack? <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> well, they, they said they published all the things that they measured, not only the ones that ended up being significant. All these agents cost about 500 bucks per month here in the US. And so, Steve, let's do a little thought experiment. What is the incentive for a pharmaceutical company to do a properly powered randomized control trial to compare their DOAC to another DOAC looking for badness? Because there's three possibilities, right? Right. No incentive whatsoever. Yeah. The three possibilities are our product is better. Okay. Our product is the same. Not good. Our product is worse. So two out of those three outcomes will not help you sell your drug. And it could be considered a self-inflicted wound on a $30 billion, yes, that's with a B, a $30 billion anticoagulant market in the U.S. alone. So they're, they're not going to, I'd be very surprised if there was a head-to-head randomized control trial. They did head-to-head comparisons from observational data. And all the statistical jujitsu in the world won't get you to an RCT. So finding one little difference here or there really, yeah, whatever. I don't spend time agonizing over what DOAC I'm going to write for somebody who has a new onset AFib. Yeah. And when you're thinking of prescribing a new medicine, the steps methodology is a really useful, you know, comparing different drugs that you might use. That's safety, tolerability, effectiveness, price, and simplicity. And they're really pretty much the same. To me, if I was worried about a GI bleed or they had an increased risk of GI bleed, this is enough for me, all things being equal, to prescribe a Pixaban for that patient. Bottom line. This large observational study shows four DOACs are equivalent, except for a Pixaban, which has a lower rate of GI bleeding. Paper nine. Abstract number nine. This is the last paper for me this month. The effect of spinal cord burst. Stimulation versus placebo. Stimulation. On disability in patients with chronic radicular pain after lumbar spine surgery, JAMA 2022. So I've done a paper on hypnosis this month, a paper on psychedelic drugs. Now I'm going to shock the audience with a spinal cord burst stimulator. The objective of this trial was to determine the efficacy of a spinal cord burst stimulator in patients with chronic radiculopathy after surgery for degenerative lumbar spine disorders. It was a randomized placebo-controlled crossover trial, and it was done in Norway. So they had adults 18 years of age and older, and they had to have the following. They had to have at least one decompression or fusion procedure for a degenerative disc disease. They had to have post-operative pain after that surgery, defined as chronic, meaning it lasted a minimum of six months, and it was refractory to non-surgical treatments. So they've, they've got a back problem, they've had the surgery for the back problem, and still six months later after standard non-surgical treatment, they're still having pain. And the average pain intensity had to be at least 5 out of 10 for leg pain. And they couldn't have any additional surgery or pharmacologic treatments. So that's how they included the patients into this. 50 patients, so a small study, were randomized to two three-month periods of burst stimulation or two three-month periods of placebo stimulation. The primary outcome was a change 
from baseline in a self-reported disability index called the ODI. And zero meant you had no disability, and it went up to a maximum of 100, and that would be completely disabled. And they considered a 10-point drop, so a 10% change, an absolute change, would be considered the minimally clinically important difference. The cohort had a mean age of 52 years, so this is middle-aged people with their back problems, but a 50-50 split, male-female, and the mean disability score was 45 out of 100. And what they found was the change in the mean score was almost 11 points for the burst stimulator and 9 points during the placebo stimulation period. And then there was no differences in the secondary outcome. Now, one of the major limitations that the authors do point out is the effect of surgery on the results. Because surgery can have a strong placebo effect. But I didn't know if they were pointing out that they meant the original surgery, like the decompression or spine fusion surgery, or were they talking to the surgery to implant the stimulators? You know, placing leads over the dorsal column of the spine, you know, can sound scary, but it's certainly not spinal fusion surgery, but it could still introduce a placebo effect into both groups. And so you're not able to tease out the difference because the placebo, that noise is so big. But we actually covered the top 10 elective orthopedic procedures in January of 2022 on PCMA. And that study showed that there was no high-quality evidence to support lumbar spine fusion or decompression surgery in the first place being superior to non-operative treatment. So at the end of the day, I mean, the effect size in both groups was small. It was around 10. There was no statistical difference between the groups whether you had the stimulator turned on or it wasn't. Yeah, I appreciate that they had a placebo group, which or the sham group, which I don't know if it just like zapped in a different way. And maybe this is another one, Ken, where they could have asked the patients if they knew which one they were in at which time. Absolutely, yeah. It's always nice to know if your blinding has been um, throughout the whole period, especially when uh, people are reporting subjective outcomes. So subjectively, what do you think of how you're doing? If you had an objective measure, it might be a little bit different. But with a subjective outcome, boy, that blinding becomes even more important. Bottom line. Implantable nerve stimulators cannot be recommended for chronic post-op spinal decompression surgery based on this one well-done trial. Paper 10. Abstract number 10 is a guideline review. We try to throw in some guidelines periodically, and this is from the gold standard of guidelines, the USPSTF. Guideline review. And this is screening for prediabetes and type 2 diabetes in children and adolescents. JAMA 2022. I just, I just read the title there, Ken. I, I couldn't put air quotes in or anything. <laughs> no, I'm already in agony. Oh, yeah, exactly. For pre-diabetes. I feel like if even the USPSDF is using the term pre-diabetes, that we have definitely lost this war. <laughs> oh. I know. I know. So the incidence of type 2 diabetes is rising in kids. In 2015, it was 13.8 cases per 100,000 children and adolescents. And so the USPSTF commissioned a new review of evidence. This is a new guideline, a new recommendation, not an update, to determine if screening for diabetes or so-called pre-diabetes is beneficial in kids under 18. And they define pre-diabetes as, among other metrics, as all these sugar values, 
but an A1C of 5.7 to 6.5. And diabetes type 2 is defined as A1C of 6.5 or higher. And we know that this definition is by the American Diabetes Association. So spoiler alert, there is insufficient evidence or an I recommendation, or I don't know, to screen kids for diabetes. And so this recommendation is based on a systematic review. There were no studies that addressed the direct benefits of screening on health outcomes. There were two trials that addressed the benefits of intervention for adolescents treated for type 2 diabetes, including the pretty well-known today study of 699 patients, but there were no benefits seen in patient-oriented outcomes for treating kids with diagnosed type 2 diabetes. And there were no studies addressing the harm of screening. And there are no studies addressing screening for patients with certain risk factors, like some ethnic groups or obesity. So that's really sparse evidence. And that's why the USPSTF gave it an I recommendation. Unsurprisingly, there are other groups that do recommend screening, most notably the American Diabetes Association recommends risk-based screening every three years for children over age 10 with a BMI greater than 85th percentile and one or more additional risk factors. So I rating is not surprising given the lack of studies and how hard it is to show patient-oriented outcome changes in children who are unlikely to experience harms from diabetes for many, many years. We really don't know if treating abnormal glucose early improves outcome compared to waiting until symptoms arrive. And the long-term follow-up, we talked about this last month, of the diabetes prevention program in adults implies that even a few years of treatment doesn't make much difference in the long term. Of course, this doesn't mean that we shouldn't investigate children that have symptoms. And of course, it doesn't mean that we shouldn't consider healthy lifestyle counseling for all of our children and adolescent patients. Yeah, I'm glad you put a point on that. This is screening people. This is not the kid that's sitting under the tap <laughs> just right, drinking. Exactly. Every- oh, that's type 1 diabetes though. Oh yeah, careful, right? Because yeah. we're talking about pre-diabetes and type 2 diabetes, exactly. right? Asymptomatic. But Steve, I got to tell you, it saddens me. It saddens me that we've come to this point in our society that we're talking about screening children for pre-diabetes or type 2 diabetes. While there is insufficient evidence currently, if the prevalence of this disease continues to increase and the treatments get better, this recommendation may go from an I don't know to a B recommendation during our careers. But I did notice that uh, there was a study published in that journal called New England Journal of Medicine in November on semaglutide which is not approved for children, so not approved under 18. But there was a trial published in November that looked at once-a-week injections in adolescents with obesity. So I think this is coming. And, uh, I, you know, tell you what, I'll, I'll pick this paper. I'll pick that New England Journal of Paper for our next show. Yeah, the GLPs are, some of them are approved for weight loss in adults, and I expect that they will be based on the paper that we're going to talk about will likely be approved for adolescents also. Bottom line. There's insufficient evidence to routinely screen children for type 2 diabetes. All right, PCMAers, you heard it. We actually take feedback and respond to every email you send. And if you think there's a paper out there that we're missing 
Uh, let's crowdsource this. You guys can read and see more papers than we can individually. So if you th- see something, you go, you know what? I want to know what Steve thinks about this. I don't want Ken. I already know what Ken thinks about this. But I want to know what Steve thinks about this. Then send us an email. Get a hold of us. Head office will forward it to us. And we'd be happy to uh, respond to the email. And, and if it's a suggestion for a paper, we're happy to consider it, including it in an upcoming episode. Yeah, and we also respond to all the comments on the website. So we get an email if you comment. You are crazy. Of course I'm going to screen kids for diabetes because why? Then Ken and I, one of us will, I'll let Ken respond to the (laughs) pre-diabetes comments. (laughs) One of us will respond. That's part of our job. So the websites and the comments under each abstract is a a great place to, to send your feedback. Okay. Thanks again, Steve. Talk to you next month. Talk to you soon. sum this all up. Summary. Now it's time for the summary and we're going to kick it off with PCMA. PCMA, Article 1. Number 1, Compare, a prospective cohort study correcting and monitoring 58 misreported trials in real time. Trials 2019. This authorship group decided to look for outcome reporting errors in major journals and then report these errors to the journal and to wait and see what happened. There's no way to sugarcoat the study. It is very disheartening on many levels. The group looked at five journals over a six-week period, again, only six weeks, and found a total of 67 articles, of which 58 required correction. Holy crackamole, 58 articles in a six-week period. So the group wrote letters to the journals and then sat back to watch as several journals did jack squat when their errors were pointed out to them. Sacre bleu! Can we even call what we practice evidence-based medicine if the literature is so riddled with errors and inattention and then defensiveness when these errors are pointed out? Paper number two, Antibiotics versus No Treatment for Asymptomatic Bacteriuria in Residents of Aged Care Facilities, a Systematic Review and meta-analysis in the British Journal of General Practice. This was a systematic review and meta-analysis of nine papers from the 1980s, 1990s, and one from the 2000s that had addressed the issue of treatment versus no treatment for asymptomatic bacteria in older adults. Turns out that there seems to be no patient-oriented benefits of treating these patients, and as with most antibiotic prescriptions, these ones were associated with potential harms to both the patient, with their adverse effects, and the population as a whole, with antibiotic resistance. Paper 3, Randomized Clinical Trial, Individual versus Group Hypnotherapy for Irritable Bowel Syndrome in Alimentary Pharmacology and Therapeutics 2022. Okay, Ken rightfully pointed out several problems with the study, like the lack of a control group, a single-center sample, and a single hypnotherapist. And of course, these limit the real-world applicability of the study. But I tell you, I want to hire this hypnotherapist that they used in the study because to see equal levels of prudence in patients who had both individual or group hypnotherapy with this person means that they have quite the skill set. Paper number four, Non-Pharmacological Interventions to Lengthen Sleep Duration in Healthy Children, a Systematic Review and Meta-Analysis, in JAMA Pediatrics 2022. The authors here looked at 45 randomized control trials with over 13,000 patients in an effort to see what non-pharmacological steps would be best for getting kids to sleep more. I think all of us have some quibbles with the study in that they lumped babies in with 19-year-olds, 
and there was a generally high heterogeneity in the patients across the trials. But, and here comes the massive surprise, the studies show that one way of getting kids to sleep longer is to put them to bed earlier. Not sure if they realize that putting kids to bed earlier doesn't always mean that the kids will fall asleep earlier, but it's great to see a study reducing such a complicated issue down to such glib and irritating answers. You know what? I actually thought this was brilliant because everybody knows people do better if they go to sleep earlier. No, this actually makes sense, and people just forget this basic truth. But you can't get them to go to sleep just because you put them to bed. Doesn't mean they go to sleep. (laughs) You're cozy and warm in your bed, my dear. Please go the f*** to sleep. This is the thing I had the quibble with. I don't debate the fact that kids need more sleep. It's that they said put them to bed earlier, but that doesn't mean they go to sleep earlier. Paper 5, Malignancy Assessment Using Gene Identification in Captured Cells Algorithms for the Prediction of Malignancy in Women with a Pelvic Mass. And this is in the Journal of Obstetrics and Gynecology. This study tried to figure out if analyzing peripheral blood using multiplex gene expression alone or in combination with serum biomarkers could accurately detect malignancy in women who had a pelvic mass. This study is riddled with selection bias and is comprised of a very homogenous single-centered patient selection. So unfortunately, this makes the study quite a bit weaker than it might have been if they'd done a prospective validation study of consecutive patients from the general population. So basically, my bottom line is this is not ready for prime time. Go back, do a better study, then come back and tell us what your results are. Paper number six, Effective Colonoscopy Screening on Risks of Colorectal Cancer and Related Death in the New England Journal of Medicine 2022. This was an interesting and widely discussed study from the New England Journal that looked at the impact of colonoscopy on risks of colorectal cancer and related death in around 84,000 Northern European patients over a 10-year period. There are lots of discussion points here and great things to consider, but ultimately the important thing to remember is that this paper showed that inviting people to undergo screening colonoscopies led to lower rates of colorectal cancer, but didn't impact mortality from colorectal cancer. Paper 7 single-dose psilocybin for a treatment-resistant episode of major depression in New England Journal of Medicine 2022. And I just got to say, Vanessa, that the possibility of psychedelics being effective treatments for depression is very exciting stuff, don't you find? I do. I'm excited to see where this leads us, that's for sure. Yeah, and I, I think we still have a ways to go. And I use the term possibility deliberately because this paper does fail to provide high-quality data supporting its use. If only they had included a control arm who received no psilocybin. But I'm optimistic that one day these studies will be done, and very possibly we'll be giving people magic mushrooms to make them feel better. Paper number eight, comparative effectiveness and safety between apixaban, dabigatran, idoxaban, and rivaroxaban among patients with atrial fibrillation, a multinational population-based cohort study from the Annals of Internal Medicine, 2022. I think we're probably now all pretty comfortable starting our patients with new atrial fib on DOACs, following the guidelines as we go, of course, but we still have to decide on which DOAC to use. So how do we do that? Well, this multinational population-based cohort study of over 500,000 new DOAC users compared the four DOACs in terms of adverse effects and all-cause mortality, with the goal of helping us with that decision. And it seems that they are basically all equivalent, except for apixaban, which seems to be associated with less risk of GI bleeding. Okay, paper nine, effective spinal cord burst stimulation versus placebo stimulation on disability in patients with chronic radicular pain 
after lumbar spine surgery in JAMA 2022. So what's worse than needing to have back surgery for degenerative disc disease? Having radiculopathy after having back surgery for degenerative disc disease, of course. So this study asked the question of, hey, if we put a spinal cord burst stimulator in there, will it help people who have radiculopathy after the surgery? And the answer is no, it didn't. So don't do it. Paper 10. Screening for prediabetes and type 2 diabetes in children and adolescents, the U.S. Preventative Services Task Force Recommendation Statement from JAMA 2022. Guideline Review. This USPSTF looked at the question of whether there was benefit in screening those underage for prediabetes or diabetes. Turns out that there are a lack of studies in this realm for now, so the current conclusion is that there is insufficient evidence for screening in this population. However, as Ken points out, with the rates of diabetes skyrocketing in all age groups, you can expect to see more research into this and likely new guidelines down the road. So stay tuned. It's Reviews and Perspectives with Dr. Hobart Lee. Reviews and Perspectives with Hobart Lee. Hobie and I tackled student debt. And what a heavy, paralyzing load this is. Whoa. Medical education is a very pricey commodity that many of us have been paying for for decades and will pay for for decades. I was surprised, though, to hear that the level of mid-student indebtedness did not actually seem to encourage or discourage particular specialty choice. And it was very disquieting to realize that the cost and potential debt loads prevent many from going into medicine, and that medicine may be coming the realm of the well-to-do. And this is huge implication for representation in our field. Yeah, this is all very concerning. The Generalist. Generalist. On The Generalist this month, Jake and I had a chat about incentive spirometry. And let me summarize the conclusions by saying that evidence-based medicine is clearly trying to strip the joy out of my life and the life of my patients on the ward. (laughs) I love prescribing incentive spirometers, and I know that many of my patients actually like having something concrete to do while they are in hospital, a task that they can do every hour and something by which they can gauge their improvement. Turns out that incentive spirometry, though, isn't all it's cracked up to be. But, and I know I shouldn't say this, I may still have prescribed it from time to time after reading this. I just love it so much. But don't listen to me. Actually, listen to me. Hear my pain and go out there and design an awesome study that shows it is actually a cure-all for every problem. If you do this, I will send you a donut. (laughs) Oh my gosh, I'm with you. I prescribed incentive spirometry the next day after listening to this. Me too. Like, well, it gives my patients something to do and it doesn't seem to cause all that much harm. Maybe. I went down a rabbit hole of environmental harms and looking at the plastic, and I'm like, oh, maybe, maybe this is bad. But I have them here in my hospital, and just yesterday, I prescribed this. <laughs> Abdominal lymph nodes with Chris Drum. Okay, Chris Drum presented the case of the mysterious abdominal lymph nodes. And what I took home from this story is that as family doctors, We are well positioned to know when our patients are not doing well and when we should order further investigations or send them along to higher acuity care centers. And it was also a good reminder that we should know which specific tests we need to order. I'm looking at you, CT versus CT with contrast. Prostate cancer screening. And then on another piece, you welcome Justin Bailey back, and the two of you had a chat about the ins and the outs of prostate cancer. It's a bit of a deep dive, but it's well worth listening to if you'd like to relive the roller coaster ride that has been prostate cancer screening, particularly, and treatment over the last several years. I don't get it. Back to basics. Oh. 
got it. Wait, lost it. Then we had a lovely piece on HSV, herpes simplex virus, and Vanessa. Remember when we were in medical school together and that year at the talent show, there was that internal medicine resident who was also a gifted singer and bassist, and she did a song about HSV. Do you remember that? Of course, <laughs> of course I do. Of course. Oh, my gosh. It was brilliant because the chorus lyrics were, you'll come and you'll go and we'll never know when you'll come and you'll go. And I learned more from that song about HSV than I have learned from anything until this piece. This was a great piece. Thanks to Gita and Mel for this wonderful refresher on a common viral infection and its devious ways. Rural Medicine Talks. This month on Rural Medicine, I was joined again by Dr. Benjamin Mati, who had another interesting case. This time it was a trauma, the unfortunate story of a lady who fell off a ladder and sustained serious injuries. This case really highlighted the challenges of dealing with a trauma case in a small, remote, or rural ER, when staff numbers are small and experience with complex trauma might be minimal. Ben had some interesting insights and reflections after this piece, and anyone who works in a small shop will certainly know where he is coming from. Okay, well, that wraps up the month, our fourth birthday celebration. It's been a pleasure hanging out with you, Vanessa, and all of you out there who are listening. If you're still wanting more quality education, please check out our sister audio shows, MRAP and UC Max. There's lots of learning left to be done. And of course, come back here one month from today. And until then, keep doing what you do, because what you do matters. Mm-hmm.